My name is Finley Carraway, and I'm a writer from Australia, and you're listening to the Just Conversation podcast. Warning, this program contains strong themes meant for a mature audience. Discretion is advised. Going live in 5, 4. What does live mean? Uh. Welcome to Just Conversation, the show where we ground humanity's most absurd and baffling ideas in childish ways. I'm your host, Jack. And I'm your host, Christina. And if you haven't yet, remember to hit that subscribe button and get notified the second new episodes are released. Also, this show is most enjoyable with a listening partner to share opinions and ideas on the topics we discuss. Yes, so get cozied up with somebody to listen to so that you can discuss and potentially argue anything that we're talking about. And if you don't have somebody to listen to, still enjoy it because it is a thoughty, a thoughty, a thoughty, a thought, I think thought like a, like slutty chick. Like a thought, like hood version of slut or whatever when I say that. But I don't mean thought. I mean like heady. That's a better one. But then I think of giving head. That's what, <laughs> yes. There's no winning here. No. It's a very psychological podcast It makes you think. Is what I'm trying to get to. Thoughts and head all included. Anyways, before we get to today's guest, we're going to read you some. Reviews. Yes. Yay. Okay, the first one is from V21A. That is a robot that decided to leave a comment. Awesome. It's a Twitter bot. It's a Twitter bot. And the comment goes, hmm, great audio, thought-provoking conversation, and great report between the hosts. They do a good job of doing a push and pull between them. Yes. Agreed. I think there's always like a like a struggle going on. I'm always trying to explode into madness. Or are you am I pushing and you're pulling? No, you're definitely pushing. I'm pushing. And I'm pulling? I guess we're both pushing and pulling. I guess that's the idea here. (laughs) Everybody pushes and pulls. But it's like I push, then you push back. And when I pull, then you pull back. You're never the first to push and you're never the first to pull, but you make sure I don't push too hard and I don't pull too hard. Yes. There we go. You see, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this robot gets it. Yeah. The next one is from Shannon D. Smith. So entertaining. The promise of this wildly entertaining podcast is just conversation, which in and of itself is unique. But add in the crazy rants and stories that Jack and Christina come up with, and I cannot stop listening. My favorite story so far is about the notebook, Batman. It reminds me of the rabbit holes my son and I travel down when we get off topic and just make up stories about nothing remotely real. I love it. This podcast is a must listen. That is awesome. Yes. I kind of do remember the uh, the story of Batbook. Just a little. Not, I do not. I mean, I remember the more recent one put on the other podcast, but I don't remember... The one from this podcast. Yes, when Batbook himself went to the You Mind podcast and had a discussion over there with uh, the secretary of the devil. Is she the secretary? I know she works for the devil. Whatever, Napoleon Doom, that lady. Who may or may not be the secretary. Who may or may not be the secretary. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Not entirely sure. Yeah. Or is she a guy? Because she's Napoleon. Wait, No. I'm not sure. Napoleon Doom is a weird individual that works for the devil. Go listen to the You Mind podcast and check out that book, as well as anything else. That's total chaotic, awesome madness. Anyways, today what we have for you guys, as usual at the end of a session of conversations between me and Christina, 
once in a while a guest pops up. Ooh. Yes. And uh, today's guest? guest is author, writer, Finley Carraway. Yes. He's my favorite. No. What has he written? He's written the short story titled The Middle Veil Mystery. And uh, he's here today to come and uh, have a discussion with me about whatever the fuck he decides and I, I guess, twist and turn it, push it towards, push and pull. And you push and pull. Whatever I push and pull it towards. Mm -hmm. Anyways, yeah, so he's here to come and talk about that and promote the Middle Veil Mystery. And we're probably going to get into the weeds, as people say. I don't know where that came the from. Weeds? The weeds? We're going to get into the weeds, probably on writing, because I love to poke writers' minds and see what different things they do. and what Different techniques. What different techniques and methods they have. Ooh. It's the only craft that people give less of a shit about what you write <laughs> than they care about how you wrote it. And that's what you're doing, though? I'm totally going to be like a typical person. No, nah, I'm probably going to just... He's going to say something and then I'm going to forget that we're talking about writing and like yeah. veer off in a random direction and just generally start harassing his ideas and thoughts and question him and play devil's advocate. Probably aggravate him a little, but he and I will both leave knowing more. Mm-hmm. And you will bond and become the best of friends. Yes, the way every guest who comes here yes. does. Yep. I become best friends with everybody. Actually, that does happen a lot, though. I seem to stay in touch with anybody who's come through the show. That's awesome. That is awesome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's totally great. Duh. Anyways, so yeah, we're going to have a conversation with Finley, Finley. Carraway. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Author of The Middle Veil Mystery. Yes. Yes. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Enjoy. Enjoy. And also, hi. Hi. Yeah, here how it's basically a utopia. You've got the perfect president and everything's going really well. Oh, yeah, man. The existence of our president didn't totally snowball the rest of the country into chaos and the rest of the planet as a result. You know, it's a paradise, as everybody says. You should definitely come over here and live this paradise. Where you are isn't a million times better. Everybody isn't running away to Australia and Canada, right? Yeah, well, you see, the thing is that while you're going through the best president in the history of you know, he's really terrific, really a great guy. While you're doing all of that, our prime minister, in the middle of bushfires raging all the way through half of the country, decided to take a holiday with his family in Hawaii. Fantastic. That actually sounds like he's probably hanging out with our lovely president. That's phenomenal. Yeah, well, it, was like all, a... it was all very secret. It was very secret. And they weren't, it, it actually took some really uh, heavy digging by a couple of clever journalists to actually work out where he was. And uh, so now, of course, he's in a whole lot of trouble. So, oh, my God. So this is, wow, wow. Do you see, the problem is really social media when you think about it. Like the fact that now we have the ability to share vast amounts of information in very short amounts of time pretty much makes nothing a secret. Before, you know, oh, this person saw them, just let's let's go confiscate their camera, and then there's no proof of anything. It's just a rumor from this point forward. But now somebody takes, like, a a picture with their phone, sends it into social media, and everybody's like, what the fuck? The prime minister's on vacation in the middle of this tragedy? And it's like, wow, okay, fantastic. All the corruption is always exposed. Yeah, I think everyone was really looking for a uh, 
you know, a lovely sort of romantic figure of our conservative prime minister with your conservative president, perhaps holding hands, walking along a beach in Hawaii. I wouldn't even be surprised if that's a thing we could find. Hey, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually exists. It seems that uh, men of this, uh, you know, very appropriate and respectful demeanor who are all very honorable and leading the countries in their best and doing what the people want clearly and no arguments any of that seem to hang out together you know the putins of the world and trumps of the world and everybody just they all hang out together they're they're a big clique yeah i think so i mean you know trump had the make america great again maga thing and uh we had scott morrison here who spent half the election campaign shouting slogans like how good is australia which is kind of you know pretty cheesy but it is also the sort of thing that really kind of gets people going and it's amazing how ridiculous slogans like that can actually turn into votes yeah it's oh man it's so crazy here's the problem i just i was just having this conversation yesterday literally where it's like we don't have rep how do i even put it there's no way to word the frustration that comes with knowing that government is designed to serve people but suddenly at some point the manipulation and the confusion and the lack of education made it so the government runs people that's some yeah twisted mess and people don't realize that they are the bosses of the government and the government knows people don't realize this and they just do whatever they want rather than doing what the people ask so that's how we end up in these situations where people are very likely to vote for somebody and it doesn't even matter because there's a, a, a different group of people who are voting for whoever they choose when they're supposed to be representing the people who voted to tell them who they wanted to vote and it yeah. seems like this problem applies globally at this moment. Everybody thought every other country was great except their own. Now we all know each other's country is just melting. Everything is melting. Everything is falling apart. The UK is falling apart. England's falling apart. The United States is falling apart. Australia's falling apart. Russia's falling What isn't falling apart? Well, I suppose it's, you know been a grand experiment this western democracy thing and maybe maybe we're coming to the end of an era i mean the problem is with that whole idea of people you know the governments are supposed to serve the people etc etc is that in the end politics and government is still about power and the only way to build power in a democracy is to sort of get more than half the country to vote for you and and some that that requires a level of populism that that a lot of well, unfortunately, a lot of the sort of movements, particularly on the left side of politics, just don't have those sorts of numbers. And so they invariably, they think they're really important, but they invariably fail come election time. Yeah, it's the, the, the like you said, it's this weird Western experiment that's being run. And it's, we created a monster. <laughs> that's all it is. We made a monster we can't control. We applied power and thought, you know, it's it's going to make sense. It's going to work. It's going to be functional. And if not, at least we have the ability to change it at will because the rules are built into the system. But the problem is you built a system in which the rules could be changed at will. So the people with the power changed the rules at will in their favor. And now we're stuck with these systems that can't be altered because the people with power abuse the rules that were put there to be changed. Whoa. It's a system designed to fuck <laughs> itself. I'm just trying to process what you just said and i think i get it and i think that's the thing is that in the end 
Um, one of the problems, I suppose, with democracy is that even though the guys who get elected, the you know, the guys who are in your Congress or in the White House, even though they are elected based on what they say, we can never really know what's in their heart, as it were, what they really think. And, and so we are sort of, we have to trust them. We have to believe that we're handing them the keys and, and that they're going to use them responsibly. That is, that's the, the whole gamble, isn't it? Because we can't read minds. We don't have the capacity to really know what's happening in their minds. And if we're led, to, we're left just with trust for these individuals and they could have the completely different ideas than what they say. They could just be saying what we want to hear in order to get into the office and then do whatever the hell they want. The only way to really sort of proof these systems that are corrupted in every form of western society is really to make it so that these people have to one be exposed at all times you have to opt into the public eye in such a way that you cannot refute it you always have to be in the public eye social media you everything you do has to be publicized everything you do has to be seen you're not allowed to have secret meetings because you are a representative of the people the people should have a right to know anything and everything you say always forever because you represent their thoughts if you're saying something that isn't what they said it should already be known to them the moment you said it because everything you say is publicized. The fact that secret meetings could be had, the fact that secret money could be exchanged. There should be a camera on you 24-7 so that we know who gave you money and why they gave it to you. We should know who you're talking to, why you're talking to them, what you're telling them, why you're telling them that. If you're having a conversation here, we should know that three weeks ago you had a different conversation over there and we should be able to connect those dots. But because we have all this obscure secrecy and government privacy and these things, like why is there, why is there such a thing as government privacy if we are the people? What, what are you hiding from us if we put you there based on our ideas? Aren't you representing what we well, already knew? You're, you're describing pretty much the exact opposite of what the current situation is, where we, the people, are heavily surveilled. And, you know, everything, even this conversation, obviously, is going to go on a podcast. But, you know, my phone is, is just next to me, and it's probably listening to everything I say as well. But uh, that sort of thing doesn't seem to apply to the politicians. Mind you, having said that, I still think that, um, you know, obviously that even politicians who are duly elected, they, they deserve their own private time. And also, I mean, a bit of deal making behind the scenes is actually what you need to do just to get anything done. And I think if we open it all up completely transparently, you might find that everything just grinds to a halt because there's always going to have someone who has a problem with something, right? Nothing is ever going to be 100%. Yes, can't please everyone all the time. You can only please some of the people some of the time. That's that's a big problem. Here's This is where I say we need the world as a whole. Everybody, every single country in the planet needs to look at France as an example. We don't need to all agree to agree completely that we don't all agree. That's just reasoning right yeah. there. The fact that we don't all agree is good enough reason to know there's something wrong. There should be somebody trying to balance the scale enough so that we're at least complacent. But even that doesn't work. What does France do in that moment? We rise as a country and stop the government. Why doesn't any other yeah, country do that? A long history. Yeah. Why don't the rest of us? We're just like, well, the red side doesn't agree with my blue side so i guess i can't take part and fuck them whatever happens to them fuck them but it's like okay you're divided yeah. and that's part of the plan isn't it you can't overthrow them because well, that's like but that's like what happens with you guys um when you've got um you know like a left-wing commentator um who go or even or even left-wing politician 
um, you know, like a Tulsi Gabbard, if she goes on Tucker Carlson's show, everyone on the left go, gets outraged. You know, how, how could she go on Fox? You know, Fox is right wing. Fox is Republican. But I mean, Fox is very popular. That's a lot of there's a lot of people watching that. So it makes sense for a politician to appear on, on a right wing program, even if they're left wing themselves. I mean, they've got to get their message out somehow. Yes, 100 percent. How are you going to convert the opposite side if you're only talking to your side to start with? Yeah, exactly. And that's um that's kind of the whole cambridge problem that's happening with like facebook right that people are they're they're not just being targeted based on their already standing beliefs and then being pushed further into that corner so that they become more divisive but people are opting into this because it's been happening for what 10 years in secrecy we just found out about this so it's been happening for like 10 years we're we've done it for so long we're programmed to just want our beliefs even now that we know about it that same situation with Fox. Why would they go on the opposite side? They should just be on our side for everything and should never interact with that other side. I shouldn't have to tune in to Fox to hear my politician because then I'm exposed to their thoughts. And it's like, you really just want to be this level of ignorant by choice. You want nothing that has to do with anything. That's crazy. I completely. Well, there's no point doing politics if all you're doing is speaking to people you agree with. Yeah, 100%. It makes zero sense to convince somebody who's already on your side. What are you convincing them of? It's a, it's a ridiculous... Well, you're just convincing them how clever you both are. Yeah, I guess. It's just kind of sticking your your fingers up your own asses and then laughing about it. Hey, yeah, my finger's way up there, right? It's like, yeah, <laughs> mine is too. But it's like, I don't even get it. I think it makes more sense to like, you're already on the blue side? Well, fuck you. I don't need to talk to you. I'm gonna go talk to a bunch of red states or some shit and try to get more people on my side, not just hang out with, throw a party for ourselves because we're already here. Exactly. And so... Man, so I guess it's not even that different in Australia with all the fucking madness going on over there. It's the, the planet's on a meltdown and none of us are copying France, the only country that knows. Stop the government if it's not working. So how, how what are you doing to cope? Well, I mean, the thing is, the madness that's going on here is because it's obviously summer in Australia now. And... Uh... Most of the of New South, the state of New South Wales, which is sort of in the middle and on the east coast of Australia, has been basically burning for about the last month. Um, just an astonishingly huge, um, you know, area has been burnt. Sydney, um, the capital of New South Wales, has been blanketed in smoke to the extent that the um, the other day the smoke haze coming in from the bushfires was actually setting off the fire alarms in office buildings. Um, it actually they had to evacuate the emergency control center because the alarms went off from the bushfires. That's how ridiculous it got. Jesus Christ! I didn't know this was happening in Australia as well. What? Uh, because I knew that the Amazon was ablaze, and I knew that uh, C- California was ablaze, but Australia is... Oh my god, look at this fucking map. What the hell? So the planet yeah, is well, just our, scorching. Our fires are a bit like your California fires. They're, they're, when the Calif- So what happens is you get this... We actually swap our fire fireys from time to time. So when we get our fires in summer... Um, you know, we've obviously got expert firefighters who have a lot of experience in that over here. And a lot of them actually go over to California during our winter to help out when there's a big fire in California because it's in, you know, opposite seasons. But what's actually been happening is that the two seasons have started to overlap. So California was having late, um, late summer bushfires and we were having early sort of fires sort of in spring. And so at, no longer could we do this personnel swap. 
This and that's climate change. Fucking madness. Hell yeah, that's climate change. The increasing temperatures, we're fucking up the ozone, we got no protection from these rays as the planet heats up in general. A single degrees causes the freaking overlap of this garbage. On the bright side, when we all drown because of the melting polar ice caps, the fires will be extinguished. <laughs> well, that's... uh. That's a pretty bleak way to thing to look forward to. <laughs> hey, there's an upside to everything, right? Yeah, I think that uh, if the if the sea levels rise by any you know significant amount, uh, you know several meters or you know tens of feet or something like that, I mean it's gonna. I mean, God knows what it's going to do to places like New York City, for instance. I oh mean, yeah, that's underwater. They already get your, your sub subways get flooded in a in a hurricane. Yes. No. The big the big fears are places that are kind of like like New York City, but we're talking entire islands. What happens to Hawaii if the water rises so drastically? You know, that that just ceases to exist. Your country entirely, Australia, shrinks in size dramatically. We lose Japan. Like things like that just happen. The world changes drastically. And and I don't know this this summer in Australia being the hottest we've had, and I think this year just the craziness with fires around the world and you know the Amazon and now in Australia, it really does feel like a a prelude to to the future. And it feels like um, that all of the things that the scientists have warned us about are really coming down the pike now. They're 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 going to happen sooner than anyone predicted. Man, what what do you do to distract yourself from this? Do you stay disconnected from news or something? Because it's like clearly happening and staying informed doesn't help in any way, but like depressed the individual who's staying tuned. How do you like avoid this? Well, I don't think you can avoid it. And, and, and I mean, it's going to become a reality of living in the world. Oh, man, it definitely is, especially as it grows in, in like as people are way more aware of these things and have to deal with it on a regular people talking about it all the time. You turn the radio on. It's there. You you can if you stay away far enough, it's because you're creating a bubble no different than the people who stay to one side of politics. You're like sheltering yourself from everything else in order to not be informed almost. Yeah. And I, and I think also it's important not to get too like carried away. And I mean, it, I suppose because it's. It feels so urgent, and that's why you're getting some of these um, really sort of loud and, 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 and boisterous protest movements like um, Extinction Rebellion, which, I mean, it's a great thing that they're you know trying to bring it, everyone's attention. It's sort of a consciousness-raising exercise, but it doesn't actually have a lot of political power because it, it's really just people cutting off traffic and, and stuff like that. I mean, they, a lot of these people would be far better off um, if they... I don't know, were to stage a takeover of one of the major parties in their country. So, you know, every, if, if everyone in Extinction Rebellion and everyone who turned up to Greta Thunberg's rallies, if they all joined the Democratic Party or if they joined the Australian Labor Party or the British Labor Party and, and staged basically a takeover of the party, they could then potentially gain power, and getting back to that power thing we were talking about, in which to actually change the law to change how much coal we burn to change how much fossil fuels we use you know this it's not going to change just by shouting at politicians it definitely isn't but i also believe when it comes to these things like it seems crazy at the moment but it's not as bad as it could be and when it gets to the point where it's starting to look apocalyptic where it really starts to look that way the same thing that happens any time a tragedy of this scale comes through is going to happen which is Everybody who's filthy rich and scared out of their mind is going to commit every single penny they can to solve the problem because they're scared they're going to die along with everybody else and then suddenly the problem goes away. Because we suddenly have the resources last minute. 
Which proves it was always there, but they didn't give a fuck because it wasn't impacting them. Yeah, well, I mean, in the end, that that's the thing, isn't it? It's the people with power and the people with money, and let's face it, the two are, are very, very closely linked, if yes. not exactly the same thing. And, uh, and you know, they will only shift um, when it gets to a point that they have no choice. Yeah, yeah, when it's when in, the problem is forced on them. As long as it's on the little people, they don't give a shit. But when the problem is forced on them, they're suddenly faced with the obligation out of their own fear and necessity. And then, again, that, that's why I don't really even concern myself with that stuff. It will go away. It will go away 100%. Every time something crazy comes through, it goes away right before it's too bad. Because they don't want it to be too bad probably better in the meantime we're probably better off focusing on you know stuff that really raises the material conditions of of the common person in the street and and you know for instance i think that's why you know someone like bernie sanders does so well in the u.s because he talks about medicare for all rather than climate change because in the end people want to be healthy um and they've got to be healthy before they can really you know give a shit about climate change for sure that is uh definitely a real real situation there i, I think that's definitely accurate the the people who are arguing for the betterment of people as a whole versus a potentiality of the future seem to be doing better and ultimately come with more reason because what do we even care about saving the world if we're all dead anyways before the problems of the climate change affect us, you know? Like, it need, yes, we need to get yeah, to well, all the problems, yeah. but we need to get to them at a timely manner based on whatever is up front first. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the... I mean, it would actually work... For the current power structure, you know, it would work out really well if, if basically everyone protested in the streets every week about climate change, but, you know, nothing really changed. And because, you see, at the moment, they're just getting richer because they're not having to pay for the common person's um, health care or whatever. Um, and so the longer that continues, the better. So the more they protest in the streets, I mean, that actually works pretty well for, the, you know, the Republican Party, for the sort of elites in the Democrats, uh, you know, the same in Australia with our Liberal Party or the, the Conservatives in in England. You know, they're, they're happy for all these protests to happen because they can do this, you know, it's that whole thing, you know, can, they can do that all day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's a uh, uh, inconsistency primarily with the public that they're not aware it, at the end of the day it's really about you solve one problem to attack the other right so if let's say we do have this whole healthcare issue right we make all the wealthiest uh top one percenters pay uh five times more tax right we just increase it just enough to fund everything else in the planet now suddenly they don't want people to be unhealthy because we have to pay all their medical bills. That's more money out of our pockets. Fuck that. We're going to make sure they're all healthy so that that money doesn't come out of our pocket. So we're going to commit less money to keep them healthy so that they're less likely to go to the hospital so that our taxes for the hospital doesn't go higher. And so this public health care system then works in favor of the people because the people with the money are obligated to make sure the people don't get sick so that less people go to the hospital so that the money doesn't come out of their pocket yeah. in bigger numbers. It yeah. is about you attack that's one right. problem to fix the other. Yeah, that's right. I think I think you've kind of... The fact of the matter is that politics is about humans. So you've kind of got to look after the humans before you look after the planet. Because if you don't look after the humans, the politics will always end up biting you. That is definitely the truth. And it's not, it's not just look 
after the humans, it's look after the humans and make sure that power doesn't overtake them. Because you can have a population that's well taken care of and completely submissive. That's a problem as well. It's educate the people so that the power and the people coexist on top of take care of the people. Because once the power outsmarts the people, it doesn't matter how well taken care of they are. They can still be manipulated into things like the capitalistic consumer culture. Like, you can still be healthy and buy a bunch of shit you don't need, be completely poor, but still have your, uh, your global income that affords you your house and your food, but you're still way under the poverty line other than the fact that you just cut the survival line. That's it. You just made it past that line. So under the, the, the guise of you're taken care of, you're perfectly fine, but as for education, how to manage your money, how to advance, how to start a business and those things, you're not educated enough to do that. So yeah, we took care of you, but also we're way more powerful than you still. And that's a problem. But there is one thing, though. I mean, if you take the healthcare example, I mean, in you know, in the US, I mean, we, in Australia, it's, it's weird to have this discussion with Australia because we have Medicare for all already here, and we've had it for forty years, and you know, it's fantastic. You know, no one, no one goes without healthcare. You know, people just ring the ambulance if they're in trouble. They don't have to think about who's going to pay for it and all of that. We also have a second tier of private health insurance above that for rich people to have you know the best doctors if they want but the point is that when you when you get a job in australia there is no such thing really as the employer holding the medicare you know holding your health care over you and and so there's that certain power shift it means that it's not any not something you have to think about oh you know if i change jobs i'll lose my health care that's not something you have to think about whereas in america a lot of employers you know they contribute to the health plan that you're on. And if you change jobs or if you lose your job, you lose your health care along with it. So that's a power that employers have over employees. So if you take that away, if you give everyone health care full stop, then you're actually delivering a little extra slice of power to, to everybody. And it means that they can now make decisions about who they work for, for instance, without having to worry about their health. That's actually really interesting. I never thought about that. That's fascinating. But you're totally right. That is a definite power that's just held over the population in general. Because it's, it is like people fear losing their jobs. My whole family's on this health plan and I can't lose this job because then if my kids get sick, what happens? And that's definite, like, that's some pressure. On top of the fact that the United States has the biggest number of people with depression, and obesity, all those, that's all just part of this problem that we're, like, being held down by power. Depression causes the overweight on top of anything else. And the depression comes from feeling like you are insignificant and, like, you have no options and that you are boxed in. And something as simple as what you just said, healthcare from your job. You fucking hate your job, but it pays the bills. You bought a house too big to afford with a different job. You don't know if you could get the same pay and the healthcare that you're getting from this company is the one that can support your whole family. If you go to another job, you got to start off and you need that six-month period before you get the health insurance and you can put your family on it and you don't know if your kid's going to get sick in that time and you don't want to gamble. So now you're trapped here until you get fired or fucking die. Yeah, it's 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 one... I mean, look, it's just one thing, healthcare, but it is a pretty important one. And, I mean, of course, you know, if you really go down the sort of socialism, you know, or democratic socialism or just basically... Well, just read all of the policies that Bernie Sanders has put out. 
what you find is each one of these actually chips away at the at the capitalist, at the, you know, the employer. It chips away at their power and hands a little piece of power to the person below. So, you know, healthcare gives them greater choice in who they work for, etc. And then if you go all the way up, of course, the whole idea of that sort of socialist thing is that you're taking away the reasons why most of us have to do what we do. Like most of us have jobs because we have to pay our bills and pay for a roof over our head. But, you know, the, if you take away the reason, the healthcare reason, and then perhaps there's a, a safe, a social safety net. You might even go as far as, you know, the universal basic income type thing where, okay, suddenly it's only so important that you need to even be in a job. Um, you know, these are the, all ways that are essentially handing power back to the people through their structural conditions. It's actually just what they do. And, and one of the things that people don't realize, I think, about capitalism is that it kind of holds everyone in this incredibly exploitative power relation where you have to do certain things with the time you have in your life. Otherwise, your life is, you know, becomes worthless. It's all about worth and money. So everything is about money. It is just a real real complicated situation freedom of the only freedom afforded to a population that is oppressed so heavily through the power of money everything relies on money there's no country more capitalistic than the united states of america and the only escape people have is creative mediums they don't have any other outlet there's no financial outlet unless you're in the one percent because even if you're not and you are like upper middle class you're still getting fucked by all the same taxes that are hurting the one percent because they get classified as the wealthier angle of the country so you're still getting screwed like the filthy rich people who can afford to get screwed and you still have to afford the job that's affording the crap you bought that you got tricked into but i need a huge house because i make this amount of money and this represents and so you get tricked into these ideologies that later in your 40s and 50s you find out well this was all meaningless garbage and i trapped myself for no reason simply for social reasons but until then you're like trapped in psychological systems you put yourself in these financial binds and the person who lives minimum wage lives with just as much struggle as the person who is upper middle class because they're barely making their bills one just happens to have way bigger bills, but they're barely cutting them on both ends. The only escape any of these people yeah. in any direction has is entirely creative. That's it. That's the only outlet in this country, creativity. And you have to spend your life trying to turn that into a profit with hopes that it does because that's also suppressed. Because money... Well, I mean, that's always been... Yeah, yeah money controls the, the, the creative system out here. That's another problem, like the giant publishers and the media companies that you have to pay to promote your things and all these systems put in place so that even your creative outlet is a financial gain for somebody. Well, I think, I mean, look, one of the things that's happened over the last, you know, well, most recent history, I guess, is that everything, everything has been turned into a commodity. And, and, and it's, it's just funny, like right at the same time that we're all been given this sort of creative liberation through devices you know it's 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 never been easier to write and publish a book on on amazon kindle or it's you know you can do your own podcast you can you can create your own music and 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 mix it down on your on your macbook it's really very very simple to do all of these things now which is something that's new but at the same time we're also encouraged that 
to make money from it and to make it into, you know, your side hustle or, or whatever. And that sounds great. It sounds fantastic, but it, it also is being kind of pushed upon us. And, and it's at the same time, our actual real jobs, you know, the real sort of jobs that people have where they go into an office each day or go into the factory or whatever, those things are becoming much, much less certain. And so, you know, as you face this uncertainty in, in your job, you start to look at your MacBook and you start to think about your creative ideas and you have to start thinking about whether you can make money from them. Whereas historically, people just did creative things. And, you know, it was really only the sort of quote unquote professional authors and painters and people who had typically who had benefactors, rich benefactors, who, you know, were able to make a career out of that sort of stuff. And that's actually one of the more complicated parts about the 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 sort of dynamic through money and creativity that uh creativity is a giant release uh emotionally and psychologically and it involves critical thinking and it has it's it's a, it's sort of a a mesh of all the possible things that exist uh, the the philosophy of creation alone is such a spiritual experience that just to do it you have to defeat yourself you have to sort of kind of beat your own holdups because there are no rules there is no path there are no directions and you have to structure something that doesn't exist and then follow a path that isn't there in order to make something that hasn't been thought of and all of those little yeah. steps are spiritual and self-reflective and and so counterintuitive but they they're critical and they're thinky and they they help you process and understand who you are and understand how you see other people and you you become a better person by doing it and so you can't do it because we keep you at work eight hours to 12 you have to sleep eat take care of your family do all this shit we're gonna try to give you as little time as possible to get to those things that make you more self-aware. And if you get better at them, you're more likely to succeed without the job that I'm giving you that I need you to stay at so that you can make me rich. Yeah, no, there's a lot of sort of catch-22s and dead ends all along. And, and then, of course, yeah, like I said, not only do you have to do that 12 hours in your job, they also then make that job less certain for you. You know, like they, they hang that threat of being fired every day over you. And then just to make things even worse, they say, you know, that creative outlet that makes you feel better spiritually. Well, guess what? If you go onto Patreon, you can actually make money from it. You better start thinking about how to make money from it, which, of course, is the worst thing for creativity is to have to think about how to make money from it, because it's it is just literally, as they say, soul destroying it. It's spiritually destructive. It ruins the creative process completely. And, um, you know, there really is only one type of person who or types of people who actually are any good at that whole mesh between creativity and making money and that's advertising okay powerful i never thought of that but you're definitely right uh, that's that's fascinating because the idea of that is how to be creative in an income-based way my whole job is to creatively sell a thing fascinating i never even thought about that that is a creative outlet that the point is how much money you get from it. Yeah, I mean, that's what advertising... I mean, advertising doesn't exist if you don't have something to sell. But advertising also is incredibly creative. And I mean, like some of the guys who've written jingles and, and written ads and things over the, you know, the last 40 years, I mean, they are some of the most creative um, 
you know, geniuses the world has seen. But, you know, it's questionable whether they'll go down in history as, as that. Um, but I mean, the point is that they are managed, they managed to bring a creative talent, um, to an industry that needs their talents to make money. Um, but in every other creative outlet, so, you know, writing books or singing songs or, you know, acting on film or stage, these are much more sort of purely creative outlets and, and it tends to ruin them whenever someone tries to bring the money into it. I mean, so if you decided I'm going to be an actor so that I can be rich and famous in Hollywood, well, the chances are that's not going to work. You have to really just want to be an actor and then it's kind of luck of the draw that you'll make money out of it. Yeah, that's the that's the craziest part. You can't ever start with money on your mind because you begin with a an already failing plan. What are you going to make money from if you didn't sit there and work at it because you loved it? Because if you don't love it, your work at it is just going to be with the money in mind. You're not going to find interest in what you're doing. You're just going to do it like homework to get through it and then be done. And then, okay, tomorrow I'll do it again when I have to. I'll schedule it into a time. And you're not getting enjoyment. Enjoyment is where you find the little nuanced things where you discover and where you reflect and where you know, wow, this is what I like about it. I need to keep following this path and then in that same path you're already taking you find the other thing that's oh my wow this other branching thing is fascinating too and through that exploration of loving the thing you have to lose sight of the money you just follow this path itself regardless of where it takes you and eventually maybe the road leads you to money but you can't be having that in mind it could lead you nowhere except satisfaction but that's fine yeah, I mean, too I'm not Obviously, some artists do reach a point where it is about money and they and they keep doing the thing that they do for money and and that's fine, but it it is definitely not where they begin i mean so you know a famous author like James Patterson i mean you know he makes just so much money out of his writing but but I mean when he wrote his first book, he was a nobody, and he didn't write that first book thinking i'm going to be a you know multi multi millionaire one day he wrote that book thinking, I hope someone reads it. Here's the thing. Here's what I'll say about that. I think that it's a three-stage system. Anybody who starts on money is doomed to fail unless they are some like elaborate genius at the making money part. But this, with those random exceptions who are like, I'm going to sell a thing and be rich or whatever, who do make it. With exception for that like one or point zero 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 one percent of population, everybody who makes it starts off with the, I love what I'm going to do. And they do it long enough to be good enough or unique enough or stand out enough or just offer something that is worth buying. They get in the eyes of money. They sell the thing. They do a couple more that are their passion and it sells well enough. Okay, now they're in this comfortable space where they have the skill to market. They know they do. They've sold a couple of things. It's made money. They're like, I'm going to commit now to doing this for money. And now it's about money, but it doesn't stay that way. You just make enough. Some people get stuck there. Don't get me wrong. They, they never make more than that, and then it becomes a routine. But then some people make it so well that they exit the necessity to keep doing it for money. Now you're so rich, you don't have to do this ever again. Then you're again in the space where you keep doing it because you love doing it. 
and then you've hit a point in which your writing is peak because you don't have the worry of am I going to eat tomorrow? Do I have a place to sleep tomorrow? You're still doing it because you love it minus the stress of the first time you started because you love it plus all the skill of the path you took there. So you have all the talent, none of the stress, this kind of godlike ability to create you've trained yourself to do it well you've trained yourself to understand your method how you do it what is good about what you do and you got no worries and you could just do it forever freely and those people are the ones we magnet to because they've gone through the process of i did it because i loved it i did it for money now i have all the skill and i don't need the money i make amazing and that's the people that we end up yeah. reading the most. The Stephen Kings of the world, the Anne Rices of the world, the James. I was literally just going to mention Stephen King. I mean, like, like on that thing, right? He he still writes books quite often, and I mean, but let's face it, no one tells Stephen King what to write. He just writes what he feels like writing. Of course, he knows that he could, you know, he could write the same word, you know, four hundred times on a page for four hundred pages, and there'd be a section of the population who'd still buy his book. Um, that's his level of fame. But yeah, I mean, if you read, when you read on writing his, his book about his journey and I mean, like in the early days, he was, had some pretty desperate times. He he didn't believe for a while there that anyone was ever going to buy or read his books. And, you know, he honestly, you know, he kept all of his rejection slips and, you know, but he went through times with his wife and his kid, you know, where he could barely afford antibiotics for when his kid got sick and stuff i mean this is you know these are the early days of of, a, of an artist yes but he, always, his struggle was so so internal for him it, it was so visceral because in that same book the stephen king on writing it, right at the beginning of that where he's explaining that he used to grab comic books and he would take the pictures and write the scene into a short story kind of piecing them together to turn the comic book itself into a short story like who told him to do this he was just in love with the craft without any like direction or reason it's so fascinating that his drive is so infinitely one directional that even after becoming filthy rich he can't stop if he did he'd die he's like those old guys well, who work their is whole lives i mean he's just that like he talks about writing for sort of two hours every day, including at Christmas. And, you know, it, it's just one, it's part of who he is. And I mean, I, I went to school with, you know, people like this when I was at school who, you know, aged 15, 16, they were writing little stories and handing them to the head of the English department. And the that, that wasn't even their English teacher. They were just already writing stories. And I remember thinking that was crazy. And, you know, later on, you know, I've, 20 plus years later I, I look at that and go well no these are people who just had the bug they had that they had that urge to write and they loved you know putting words together on the page and making them into something beautiful and you know that will stay with them for the rest of their life now it doesn't mean they'll make any money from it but it will always be there isn't that fascinating that's that's where the luck of the draw really happens because you can you can be satisfied by what you do for all of eternity and never make a penny from it or you could be satisfied what you do for all of eternity and become filthy fucking rich. And there's no, like, nothing is going to assure you either. It's just keep doing it and hope for the best. Yeah, I think that's right. And you, 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 I mean, other authors, I'm uh, thinking of um, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art. Um, he talks about doing the work and, you know, turning up each day and, and sitting down at your computer and writing or doing something associated with your writing project 
or, or your art project in general, any sort of artistic pursuit. And he said that, you know, even if this is your spiritually, you know, creative outlet, that's something that you feel in your being that you must do, even if you're, you know, constantly in that space and, and art is just personal to you, you still have to sit down at your desk and do the work every day. You can't, because there's no, the muse only turns up to those people who are doing the work. Yes, you you hit it on the like that's you you hit that nail on the head. That is so accurate. This is the biggest problem, specifically with writing. When it comes to writing, this is a huge problem I see everywhere. Where everybody's like, "I'm a writer and I write," but yeah, I procrastinate a lot. But it's like, no, you're a person who wishes to write. The last time you wrote was six months ago. You're not a writer. You're a person who wrote. Because in order to be a writer, you have to be writing. In order to be a writer, you have to sit there and you have to you have to learn that it's not the inspiration and then you write. You're writing and then at some point along the path, you get inspired and that makes it in. But you develop the format. You sit there and you do it and you sit there and you do it and you wrote. A hundred thousand words of garbage, and then you broke that down to forty thousand words because most of that was garbage. But you kept writing garbage because there was something good hidden in that garbage. And then we call that step the editing process, where you chip away at the block and hopefully there's a sculpture underneath. But nobody understands that. Everybody's like, "No, I only write when I'm inspired. That's how I'm gonna finish my novel." What? Are you freaking crazy? How? How are you gonna write unless you're like? capable of in one burst of inspiration sitting there and ripping half your novel you know but how many people are like that who can we think of Anne rice that's it human who wrote a whole novel in like a weekend yeah well i mean it's that whole thing it's a bit like that whole thing the debate people have about people who are um planners versus pantsers as they call it and the pantsers being a, a refer referring to you know writing by the seat of your pants and those are the people who literally start with a little idea, start writing, and then they just see where it takes them and the, and the story story evolves from there. Now, as it happens, Stephen King is one of those people. He tends to come up with a scenario. He thinks of, you know, imagine if X happened to Y, and from there a novel comes out, um, which is a pretty wild way of writing, and it's certainly not what you know a lot of people recommend. A lot of people recommend that you sit down and think of your story and, and, and plan out your story and then go and write that story and i mean for most people they'll need that plan because like you say if you just sit down and start writing the problem is you'll never finish here's i i, I disagree with you on that actually i have used both methods successful but i guess it requires a certain level of persistence because i do think for most people you at least need to have an idea you need to have something to work with but i have my my first book was entirely me just sitting down. I just sat down and I began with, okay, I'm waking up. And I just followed that thought to a conclusion a hundred thousand words later. And I really just worked from that angle. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to follow this thought. And the thought just kept going and it was random and I would come across problems I didn't know how to solve. But I would solve them in the writing itself because I didn't have a plan for it already. I would need to find a... Uh, okay, so did you find you had the energy or the excitement and the energy? Because I've, I've written that way too myself before. I mean, I'm, I do a bit of both. But I, I mean, I find that often the best way out of a sticky point in a story is to kind of plot it out, essentially, and write some notes and ideas on where it's going to go next rather than just continually 
writing prose, I tend to sort of start, you know, going onto a whiteboard or doing little, um, you know, um, cards and things like that. But the one of the things about writing sort of from inspiration, if you like, what you were talking about, where you're inspired by an idea and then you just find yourself just typing, typing, typing. I, I did that one time. I, I wrote a 10,000 word sort of story that was sort of in a format of a screenplay literally in 24 hours one time. And, and, you know, it was great. But the thing is, what kept me going was the inspir- inspirational energy. I was really inspired by this story for that whole 24 hours and until I finished. And it wasn't, it wasn't great when I finished, still had to edit it. But the point is, when you write, do you find you still have that energy? Because for me, it's when that energy drops that you, that you suddenly reach a point where the energy drops and then you sort of stop writing for whatever and you go and get yourself a coffee. And then when you sit down again, you, can't really remember what it was that really got you going in the first place and that's i think where having some sort of a plan even if it's just a series of ideas can get you out of that bind because you're like oh yeah that's that's where i was going to go next that's that's very very fascinating i love where you're coming from with us but uh how do i put it i don't think i was inspired per se i am the guy who says kind of like Stephen King, a great example. He's like two hours every day, no matter what. I didn't sit down and I was like, wow, this is fascinating. Although it did happen sometimes. I am a strong believer that you're writing and suddenly the inspiration will hit at some point along the writing. And that would happen sometimes and I would catch myself writing through the whole day. But sometimes I just sit and I'm like, I'm not leaving the front of this computer for the next two hours. There's nothing I can do. I'm not leaving. And I will sit here, and if no words happen, at least I was sitting in front of this computer, and I won't plan, and I won't do anything. Only when I leave that computer am I allowed to do some other part. And for this, for for the story that I wrote without a plan, when I was away from the computer just do, going about my day, maybe I'd have an idea, and I'd write that down. But I wasn't actively thinking about the story. I was just, you know, going about my day, something solved the problem when I get in front of the computer... Now I just start off from where I was. Maybe I'll read a couple of sentences back, and then I just jump in and keep writing. And a lot of the, a lot of the time for that story, it was a hundred and like fifty thousand words that I had to just chop down from. But I I sat there, and some days I didn't get more than two three sentences down. Some days I would knock down ten pages ten pages in one sitting. It really varied, but it's entirely based off of the I'm going to sit here and do it until something happens. And if nothing happens, at least I was sitting there waiting for it to happen. But I, I, I'm just I loving the right alignments thing that you've got come up on the screen there about the uh, you know chaotic cancer or chaotic plotter. I'm just enjoying that. I'd like the idea of a chaotic cancer that kind of uh, writes completely out of order. Yeah, no, that's definitely not me. Okay. I I am familiar with a writer who who does that pretty frequently. They just write and I I don't know how because even oh my god, I can't even I couldn't even understand that. Cuz you see, I I pride myself on being a person who writes every way, but that's a lie when I think about that because even if I have an idea that happens way at the end of the story, at least I write it towards a piece that feels like the end. If something happened towards the beginning, I write it higher up on the article. If it's a towards the end I write it lower down on the article I know a person who would like they had an idea at the ending and they just wrote it next to the beginning and it's like how do you sift through this but eventually they did and it became one thing so great whatever props to them but I don't know how the hell that happened I've, I've had that experience where you write like you write sort of 
the major sort of plot, if you like, the right, the major plot points. And then you realize that, you know, in order to go from sort of point X to point Z, you need, you need that stuff in the middle. And you think to yourself, oh, it feels, it feels like a chore that you've got to write the stuff that gets you from A to B. But it's amazing how once you start writing that filler, that suddenly you realize, oh, wow, because if this happens, then, you know, and look, it branches out to being, you know, a really important part of the story. And it makes you realize that there really isn't much when you're writing that isn't important. It's, it's, it's all important. And then, of course, when you come back, you have to, you know, rethread the needle and make sure that the, the there is a, an actual story yes. tracing through the whole thing. You have said something that even some of the most famous writers fail to understand. And I, and I give you a lot of respect for having this level of awareness, which is a lot of writers say you write a bunch of crap, you know, be okay to write bad, and then you remove everything that doesn't have to be there. But that tells me one thing about those writers. They're not as good as they think they are. They just write a lot, and mathematically speaking, the number of words there or something has to be important. You're of the mind that anything that made it could be incorporated. You just have to know how to write it in such a way that it is important. And I think that is the mark of a good writer. Understanding everything could be useful if you know how to make it useful, rather than just ax it all off if it doesn't make sense. And sometimes there are things that feel like they don't fit. But that's just because there's an infinite growth to being a writer, and you're just not at the point where that seems like it fits, but enough experience, and you can even make that thing fit. And that applies to every writer. Anybody who thinks, no, well, you got to take off 20%. That's because you're writing more knowing you're going to have garbage you can't fit in there. But I like where you're coming from, that you believe anything can make it. You just have to be able to, in the editing process, be able to shape it properly and make it fit. I completely agree yeah, well, with that. I, I, yeah, when you're editing, I mean, it basically, you, you've got to kind of, I mean, you've got to be looking at not as the author, but as a, as a sort of a, a, a some kind of combination between an editor and, a, and an actual reader. And so everything in there has to be justified. And, and one thing that, you know, bad writing, I suppose, tends to do and is, is it trails off, you know, down garden paths and starts to particularly overly elaborate descriptions of things that, Paint, you know, perhaps beautiful pictures of the world that you're in, but don't do anything to advance the story. And, and sometimes a really tight edit of that would say, well, actually, I think you probably don't need those thousand words. Maybe it can be just a 50, 100 words little paragraph, which actually does more because the human brain, the, the one of the joys of reading is that you create the world in your head as you read. So if the author does too much, then it can actually ruin that mental image in your head that's part of the, the beauty of reading a story in the first place. Isn't that the, the biggest struggle of a writer? Like, with all the different obstacles, and God, are there many, the biggest one is really the problem, the balance of show and tell. Like, how much do you show? How much do you tell? When do you show versus when do you tell? Because it's like, some people like to have the notion of you show everything. No, some things don't matter enough to show you just want to tell quickly brush over and get to the next thing but you want it all to be seen by the inner mind of a person to be played like a movie in front of them and that balance of when to show when to tell how many words are too many words when you're using the wrong word and you're giving the wrong image you can say uh, uh creeping pacing slugging towards something but they all 
although they're all saying moving slowly, they're all giving you a different image of how something is moving slowly. So something as simple as word uses changes the entire thing. Maybe you wrote a sentence that was too many words to describe somebody moving slowly and the sentence suddenly feels like it's moving quickly. Like, it's just yep. a clusterfuck of different balancing acts to just convey a visual image. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, I think the thing is that, um, I mean, one thing to remember, I guess, and it's one of the reasons why I tried to write a couple of stories in sort of screenplay format, is that the fact is that modern culture is extremely visual. We, you know, we all have Netflix, we all have movies. We're used to seeing stories play out on screen, and that's all show, right? So, you know, when you watch a, a movie or a, or a TV series, what you're getting is a story told where it's all shown to you. There's almost no tell. And and when you read a book, of course, every novel and any story has some tell component, even though you'll get people who advise writers to say, always be showing, you know, never tell. All stories have some telling in them. And what has definitely happened is that the amount of telling in, in novels and things has declined. So you pick up a 19th century um, you know, Victorian era book, and there tends to be quite a lot of telling in it where it's just just laying stuff out for you. And if you did that in a novel in 2019, it would probably fall. You know, it'd fall flat because people would be like, oh, God, that was boring. Whereas, you know, now it's much more sort of action-based novels where they're showing stuff to you because basically what they're doing is creating in your mind what you might otherwise see in Netflix. Wow, that's interesting because then you'd have to sort of in order to have something successful, you have to essentially try to make a blockbuster book that emulates the idea of what would be seen on a screen, which is interesting because it, it would also alter our dialogue. The words we use in general while we're writing, the words we use uh, to describe the scenes in our characters would be more reflective of what we'd find on Netflix simply because we're trying to compete with something like that. Yeah, well, and, and you get stuff like, um, uh, I suppose, in the di dialogue's an interesting one, because instead of people making speeches and, and perhaps, ex you know, producing ideas on, on, in their speech, which is something you see in 19th century novels, it's something you see in 20, you know, mid 20th century stuff. I mean, I hate to sort of reference the book, but if you read, uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, I don't even like, you know, putting that in the podcast, but we'll, We'll stick with it for now. Um, <laughs> if you read that, you know, the characters in, in Atlas Shrugged, you know, are quite fond of delivering, um, you know, fairly lengthy little speeches on the, the ridiculous politics and philosophy of that book. And, uh, you know, that, again, wouldn't fly today. Now we have moved into this. It's, it's kind of realism, I suppose. It, it's much more realism based when you get um, dialogue. So. I suppose you might call it natural dialogue. When you read dialogue now in books, it tends to be very much how people speak, as opposed to trying to achieve something for the story. And, um, you know, that is reflected even in, in acting. You know, the whole idea of method acting is more about creating realism rather than, you know, just delivering lines that are, that are that were perhaps crafted for artistic effect. Well, along those lines, sort of what I'll say is, it's specifically when it comes to acting, right? So we have the, this, these kind of method acting problems of where you're trying to be too real, and it defeats the purpose because everything is aiming towards realism. We could even find this in video games where there's these hyper-realistic video games. Everything is aiming towards realism, but the fun is dying as a result. Yeah, we get fascinating stories, but we're not 
having fun. We're simply being entertained. And it's like, this is why Nicolas Cage succeeds so much. He opts completely out of realism. He goes in absurdism direction because he doesn't care about yeah. the, the these confining rules. In that same context, for writing, I am very... I try to blend both ideas. I am of the realism when it comes to dialogue. I am definitely for that. I am very uncomfortable writing something that somebody wouldn't say. I like to write in the real world, scenarios of the real world, things that could be plausible, or at least that, a, that would happen to a person that could be plausible, even if the scenario themselves aren't. And so the no. people are to speak in natural, normal ways. I do believe, on the other hand, that if done properly, you can have natural dialogue that seems realistic and still convey important story information. I think that is completely possible, although I've read so many, so many stories that are just packed with sort of almost uninformative story that's just to remind the reader that the character could talk. That kills yeah, me well, on I mean, the inside. Any time a character gets up there and does exposition, you know you're in trouble. Yeah, definitely. There's oh my god, is that there's I'm I'm so over it that lately I've been opting into narratives that have minimum dialogue because of how more frequently you're coming across those scenarios where a character is just talking to to hey, I like the sound of my voice because I'm a character and hey, I need to remind you that I talk. It's like why are you here? Why you could have just shut up and like told me through the writing in some other part rather than stand up here and talk meaningless garbage to point at something that like it kills me on the inside. Yeah. Stories have definitely well, it's, tanked. It's like that, that classic thing in, in sci-fi in particular, you know, where you get like two, you know, secondary or third-rate characters in the thing who are just having a conversation. And, and what they're actually saying is kind of like referring to something that's going on off screen. And so and you realize when you look at it, back at it, you go, what they were doing was basically just telling you the story. But as a conversation between two characters, it was just pure exposition. And it, for some reason, sci-fi gets away with it, I think, because of all the, you know, cool tricks and gadgetry. So you don't really notice it. But if you, but you really notice it in any, if in a normal straight drama, if two characters just had a talk about, oh yeah, what about what so and so did? Yeah, it's amazing because he was driving down the road and he hit that person. Uh, you know, like and it's, and you watch it and you're just cringing because it's just, just telling you the story. It's there, there's nothing, there's no action there. Not only that, like it, it's, God, I'm just frustrated by this part. Like we, we went through politics. We went through like fires burning the planet alive. And the part of this that frustrates me is the amount of exposition that could be found in stories right now that kills my soul. That's where I'm just like breaking right now. Cause it frustrates me all the rest, whatever, let the planet burn, <laughs> let all the politicians do whatever they want. We have to figure out yeah, let, how we stop these people who are writing this garbage. That is priority yeah, number like, one. Have, have dictatorships, let the world burn, but for God's sake, write good stories. Yes. At bare minimum, right? Come on. Like that's the least we can have. I'm not even trying to save the world. Just let me pick up a book and like enjoy it all the way through. Not just read the back because some clever uh, uh, copywriter decided to make something that sounds better than the book itself. You're like, I'm going to like this. Then you jump in and your soul dies like three pages in because you're like, I'm not going to like this. I hate that so much. But 
back to the point here that there is so much of that but it could be avoided the story doesn't have to come to a halt and characters could discuss things uh, i'm of the mind where you can write the exposition but it shouldn't seem like exposition if that makes sense like if you're going to give me descriptions yeah. i shouldn't know that they're descriptions oh you can do it in i mean when it's done well it's done you know by metaphor and allegory and you know like i mean you get great stories told by one character and another where it's you know it might start off, you know, like I remember my grandpa telling me and, and, you know, like it'll be a story that happened in their childhood. And what it really is, is an allegory for something that's going on in the real story world. But, and, and it is advanced in your understanding of the story, but it feels natural because it's, you know, some old grandpa telling a story and that's okay. That's fine. That's what skill in the writing craft is. But it's when they literally tell you sort of matter-of-factly about something that's going on that actually connects one plot point to the other. That's just, wow, that's just totally, you know, switch off, closed book. Yeah, that's uh, opting out of learn. Because here's the thing. This comes back to our problem with social media and the fact that you can sort of just make something and put it out there and, hey, I'm a writer by default. Now, how many people think they're a writer at this moment, but don't finish anything. And they'll be like, okay, it's been three years and I've written three words. I'm going to quickly run through this. I'm going to put it up, call it a self-help book, call it a story, call it whatever the hell, and I'm done. But they didn't go through the hard work to somebody like you who sits there and you grind at it and you pick at it and then you edit. How many books don't even have editing? Oh my god, that's another wave of well, fucking shit. Well, some of those, some of those become extremely, extremely popular, and you know, I refer obviously to uh, the Twilight series and to the Fifty Shades series. Um, you know, these are things that were, especially Fifty Shades. Um, you know, started its life out as fan fiction, and there's nothing wrong with fan fiction; it's great. Um, but boy, oh boy, could have that used an editor. Oh my God! Tell me about it. All the there's there's just there's too much of it happening. The the and here's the thing: people like to put the blame on the electronic mediums killing off uh the the physical medium of books, and that people who don't since less people have the electronic medium that reading is dying entirely. Uh, I completely disagree with that. I think too many writers who don't do the work are getting through the gates. And it's just harder to find something good to read, which makes you lose interest in reading in general. All of us can think of, from 20 years ago, 15, 20 books off the top of our head that are amazing. That's a lot harder to do right now. Because you have to yeah. sift through, unless you're going to the same authors that were doing it back then, who already have the skill and you just followed all your way through. So they might have a new book, but it's still an author from the past. Outside of that, how many new writers capture an entire world and maintain it long enough to capture the readers who are truly the critical readers? That doesn't happen anymore. Who was well, the last big name to pop up? Well, I mean, the big the big names uh, tend to be in either young adult fiction or in you know thriller. Um, I mean, that you know these are and thriller and romance, and these are the sort of top three. Absolutely, the top three categories in in sales volume, and um, 
you know, so you've, and, and people are very sort of uncurious, I suppose, you know, people, once they latch onto something they really like, they tend to, to continue to follow it. I mean, Harry Potter series is a great example. Now, Harry Potter is very well written and J.K. Rowling is a, is a very, very good, um, author. And, you know, it's quite different to say 50 shades from that point of view. Um, but, you know, we're having this thing now where it's just, we're on a cycle, on a loop. I mean, the first Harry Potter was written, what, back in the early 90s? And, you know, here we are, it's nearly 2020, and we're still creating plays and, and still watching the movies that were made on those books. So, And that's before you even get into, you know, the Marvel um, universe phenomenon. But I think what you were saying is interesting with... Um, you know, the digital age and reading. I mean, I think we're definitely reading more, actually, than we ever were before. But the thing is, we're not reading much at a time. So everything's short and it's little clips and it's, you know, tweet length or Facebook yes. post length. And, not only that, we're reading people... more and we're getting accustomed to less quality writing. We are reading more, but it again, you said in bursts, it isn't you sit there and read 20, 30 pages in a row. We're reading in bursts. And we're reading like yeah. things that aren't written, even using proper grammar, not just r proper prose and entertaining word usage and wordplay. They're not even using proper grammar. We're in an era where a smiley and a zucchini come across as words instead of actual prose, language, metaphors, similes, and anything of that nature. We're losing language or or we're just getting old and this is the next evolution and we're just desperately clinging to the past like this our language is the better language but maybe in the future of this sort of word hieroglyph mix that's happening maybe eventually you can make poetry and can make a novel and eventually there will be a novel with like smileys in it and it will work. Maybe it will be fine, and I won't get it when I pick it up and read it, and I'm like halfway through a sentence before Smiley drops where there should have been a word, and I don't get it. But my grandchildren are like, well, Grandpa, you're an idiot. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, look, I mean, you've got to be careful not to, you know, go, you know, go full boomer on this whole thing. I mean, I don't think, you know, I think rumors of the death of the English language are, are highly exaggerated. And you know, yes, there is this shortened version of, you know, text type speak that, that you know, from that started with SMSs and has obviously gone on to Twitter and etc. But and it's definitely it's definitely the most common way I guess people communicate now. But I don't think that is changing uh love of the the sort of more formal written word. I mean, books still sell and people still have to write screenplays well if they're gonna have that movie made. And I think it's because it's just a diff text is more like speech. It's it's really belongs to the speech arm of the language, whereas you know long form writing is is the formal writing arm of the language. And you know I think you see that difference probably most dramatically in in the difference between say Twitter and Facebook posts. Facebook tends to lean towards a bit of a slightly longer form, you know, maybe fifty words. And, uh, whereas, you know, the, the Twitter is obviously limited to the 240 characters. And so you actually see this speech like text on Twitter and then you see a more written type, um, piece on Facebook. And, and so I think, I don't, I think it's pretty safe. I think the language is safe, but languages change anyway. So I mean, English 
doesn't sound today like what it sounded, you know, 70 years ago. And, um, and, and that's always going to happen. It's always going to change. English is particularly voracious in borrowing stuff from other languages. It always has been. So, you know, who knows what English is going to sound like in a hundred years. Um, and frankly, in a hundred years, even the written word will probably be somewhat different, um, to what it is today. But I don't think it'll end up being just pure SMS type speak. I think, I think it will actually, you'll stay with both these tracks if you like. I think you're right. I think it's uh, going to split off into many different things. And it'll continue. Like, eventually, there will be nothing but emoji talk. And that will be just as valid as short language style uh, uh, text and Twitter size messages. And then the bigger, slightly bigger Facebook things that are just more proper, even if not necessarily grammatically correct. And then that's completely different than these long text forums that we get inside of novels and articles and uh, websites littered with hundreds of thousands of words written to inform and news articles and things like that that are, are using these sort of more direct yet metaphoric and comparison-based and clever wordplay-based systems of language. We are just going to have a multitude which is going to melt the language barrier to some degree around the planet. Specifically, when we start talking about things like emojis, I think that's the key to communicate with people across the planet at any scale. Not only do we have a translator for every possible everything, and when we translate and talk to somebody who's speaking a language we don't understand, they're from across the planet speaking some language I've never heard of, but they have a translator that allows them to send it to me in English, and I can send it back to them in their language, and we're just talking. That already comes across grammatically incorrect, but the message gets across. We know what we mean. The yeah. whole thing about smileys and emojis, we can convey, let's just say in a text message, I can tell you how I'm feeling without ever telling you how I'm feeling directly. I can just put a smiley of me laughing and with the text message and you know oh, I'm happy or I can send you the same message with a sad face and you get the tone I'm trying to convey without me ever trying to, hey, I'm smiling while I'm sending you this. But those... no, that's right, and and the thing is, but the thing is, it doesn't do it doesn't have a grammar, so emojis don't have a grammar, so you can't really communicate in emojis alone. So it, it's all to do with tone, and it's all to do with emotions, but it's got very little to do with an actual message. Well, that's where I'm trying to get to. That I actually think, with enough time, I think given enough time, we can almost like the Japanese characters. that They have a language-based character and they have a meaning-based character that could convey an entire set of words. Think of a, a Japanese, I believe. But they have two different like sets of letters. They have their standard language and they're like older. All these characters mean a million different things depending on where you use them. So those kinds of things, eventually yeah. we can have an entire sentence constructed with emoji. How many jokes are there that are just like three emojis, like a donut, what is it, a, an eggplant, and like a bed? And you like you get the message. You get my point? Like you fully understand what they mean. Eggplant, donut, bed. Yeah. I get it. So how long before <laughs> that string of images becomes a fully discussable situation where I send you a string of emojis and you send me one back and that's a full conversation. I get what you're saying. Uh, I can show you the picture of a shopping bag and you send me the picture of 
eggs and we got we fully got that conversation i didn't i don't i'm not even sure those are real emojis and you know what i'm trying to tell you hey i'm going shopping what do you want oh buy eggs boom conversation had and we only shared two emojis in that entire time like that's not that yeah, far off it has that value yet. yeah i think we're definitely right around could the corner from war that and peace? So, so the thing is then could you rewrite tolstoy's war and peace in emojis that would be a very interesting kind of project to take because you'd have that's crazy because we'd have to almost break down the value of emojis to have very specific we'd all have to basically agree there's some things we do agree on fully but there's other emojis that are up for interpretation those when like brought down to a specific meaning once that happens i think we can establish doing something like that and writing these giant novel sized things for the next generation that doesn't even speak a language they just they speak but they don't read but if you reach that point with emojis where you know each emoji or each combination of emojis means a very specific thing and therefore you can tell a, a fairly lengthy tale with those emojis then what you have is a language right that is literally you know by definition what you've got to is the point where the emojis have become a language of their own just like english so then i would ask you if you are writing a comment or a piece in emojis or English or both, once you start writing long form, I'm willing to bet that if English is a language that you communicate in regularly, you are you are still going to default to English, in which case you're you're going to end up writing a blog post in English and just and just use the emojis, you know, to convey tone and emotion if if definitely 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 and so in the end in the end even though what you're saying is true you might still end up back at the same place we are today yes that's why i'm saying i don't think that that means the death of english i think the emoji system is a hieroglyph system of communication that's evolving specifically for the internet I think there will be yeah. other things that will work, but the internet is so easy. How many people are on Facebook? What is it, like 4 billion people? There's only like 2 billion people not on Facebook or some crazy amount like that, like most of the population is. <laughs> so with so many people having access to it, if you wanted to get a message far enough, you wouldn't write it in English. Too many people have to go and translate it, and the translations might not be perfect because the systems might not be perfect. But if the emojis mean the same thing in every language, if emoji language equals the word hallelujah, that is literally the same thing no matter who's saying it, no matter what state of mind they come to it, you are sooner to write in Facebook something with emoji if you want your message to get to everybody. Well, that, I mean, that really would be, that would be, you know, that would make it the sort of the universal language, which, I mean, it, it, it probably isn't that yet, because, I mean, I imagine that people in Japan, for instance, use emojis slightly differently to how people use them in, in the US or here in Australia. But um, it's definitely closer. And I think you might be right. There is, there is, I mean, if I was chatting to someone in Japan right now and, and we were trying to convey something, you know, I don't speak Japanese. And if, and if they didn't speak very good English at all, at all or at all then i would probably turn to something that we are more likely to have in common which in the age of the internet is definitely emojis and and, and so on so and and probably probably gifts as well um so you know that that's there's no doubt about that but i mean like we were saying before i don't think that's going to change our native languages much i mean we're 
we're just going to have to end up doing both. Yes, yes. I definitely think that's going to be the case. I think every individual society is going to have their own language, and I think every region of the society is still going to have their own dialects and accents and all these different details, but the internet is universal, and I think that emojis are the hieroglyphic first original language to like be bred on the internet it was born and it's going to be raised there and it's going to evolve into something else that we can all use when we're there and when we're not it's like if you walked into if you're in japan and you walk into a restaurant and you don't know how to speak a single word of japanese but you're using hand gestures and you're making faces and they're like oh no i get what you're talking about that's an emoji yeah i think that's right and I think we're we're gonna get there. It's just it's in its primitive state. It's definitely the internet is too young. It's been around for what twenty years in mass use, and before that, it was around twenty years in primitive use only through government officials and hackers. And before then, it was yeah. only twenty years prior that it was even invented, and nobody had access to it. So it's it's quite young. And this language just happened in what the last ten years. So we've had internet for well, quite I mean, some time. Computers, computers in any form, even remotely like what we have today. I mean, it's only what fifty years old. I mean, it's not even you know, like it's it's not even a century or something that we've had anything like this sort of technology. And and most languages go through you know centuries of change before they become completely different. So I don't think that you know, if it is changing, you might be right. I mean, this is what perhaps you know a change to language looks like in the early days. I mean, we don't know. I mean, and I'm not a linguist. But you probably should get a linguist on on board on the podcast to, to discuss that more because it's, um, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. I've listened to podcasts and read books about the linguistics of this, but um, I'm certainly no expert. Well, here's what's fascinating. I don't think there's going to be a spoken word for emoji. I don't think that's going to convert to words we say. I think it really will stay as a visual medium that happens online. Yeah. Well, I, and I reckon, and, and, and the flip side to that, for instance, is, you know, what we're talking about, about writing good stories and literature. I mean, you know, I think that there will always be a place for, you know, really well-written stories. I mean, first of all, stories, full stop, are kind of the way the human brain works, and it's kind of how we relate to each other. We tell stories about what's happened and stuff. That's kind of so fundamental to human beings that i don't think it'll ever go away um but also there's a certain love for you know a beautifully turned phrase that that also i don't think will go away and and i mean because it certainly hasn't gone away in several hundred years um and we still constantly turn you know to shakespeare um you know we, we turn to jane austen we turn to these people who just were able to put combinations of words on the page in a way that we literally get pleasure just from that combination of words, and then we get an extra pleasure from the story that they were telling. I see, that's ultimately the goal of being a writer, right? Finding out how to catch that magic in a bottle. Even if we're trying to tell a story and we believe the story is the purpose, and we have this objective and we're going to, you know, get to the climax and we're going to get to the other side and we're going to tie up the story neatly and, you know, I got to remember my audience and I got to remember to show just enough but tell some and not show too much or tell too much or... I can't be boring. I got to remember where everything is. I got to edit just right. You know, grammar has to be on point, this and that. No matter what any of that stuff is, ultimately, the one thing we walk away proudest of whenever we're writing, because again, 
the full story is for the reader. The writing process is for the writer. When we leave, even if the story is complete and the reader loves it and we're the biggest hit in the world and we are the Stephen Kings of the world, I'm sure he gets off of his desk. He walks away and he just remembers that three-word combination that he's like, holy shit, I'm an animal. Meanwhile, we remember his whole stories and we're like, whoa, the best thing ever. But he doesn't give a shit. He's done those stories a million times. He cares about that new three-word combo that he's like, wow, I conveyed so much information. It sounded beautiful. Uh, it rolled off the tongue and it was just perfect. And that's all he cares about. And and honestly, most and the great thing about that the, the, and the weird thing about that, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? I mean... Because he would have in every book he's written, he would have yeah like one that one paragraph or that one sentence that he just for some reason it stuck with him and he just really likes the way he wrote it. And you know you'd guarantee that ninety nine people ninety nine readers out of a hundred wouldn't even notice that paragraph or that you know nobody else will pick up the same particular sentence that gave the author that much pleasure. But it is the thing that drives us as writers to an extent. And I mean, I, I think of a, a, a story I wrote years ago, and, and I remember when I wrote it, there was this one sentence that I wrote describing a thing that happened that I can't even remember it off the top of my head now. But I remember at the time, I kept replaying that um, sentence in my mind. I kept thinking, God, I really liked that. And it actually, it actually um, sparked off things that I wrote in the story around it. So it created a little sort of, you know, repetition and rhyme in my mind, almost like its own little world that I tried to stay in because I liked it so much, which is a very difficult thing to describe, but I'm sure you appreciate what I'm trying to get at as an author, that you, once you get one of those sentences or one of those little scenes or ideas, it's amazing how much that can flavor what you write next. And, no, and definitely. That's, that's I am very familiar with what you're talking about. It's very specific because I, I actually think I could put what you're talking about into words, which is... There's almost a theme, like how they sound or how they roll off the tongue or the tone that they set or the the image that it produces in the mind. That's something so hyper-specifically what you wanted. And sometimes even not even what you wanted, but something just astounding. There's There's a theme and an emotion and a tone that that sets that maybe you were trying to get to all along or you discovered there that you're trying to replicate everywhere else to keep it consistent with that thing that you discovered or that you're in love with that's right yeah that's a that's a weird one because it is it's unpredictable you don't know where that is and it's somewhere it's in there and you're gonna get there and you don't know when you're gonna get there it could happen while you're writing your first draft and you get it and god wouldn't that be the gift in the middle in the beginning of your first draft you come across it and then you have this complete idea of how you want it to sound who cares even what the ending is if you know what the tone is, right? There's, Which is another thing that a reader will never even comprehend. Because they're just reading and getting to the end. And they're like, yeah, the point is the story. And you're like, nah, the point was the tone. But only you know that because you're the one reading it. And you focus on that. You know what the ending was. You didn't give a shit. You were focused on how do I keep the tone all the way to the ending. And it's like those things, just like that, the tone or the theme that everybody's going to miss... They're focused on, oh, this character killed that character, and the drama between these two characters, and all the clue was hidden under the rug. Meanwhile, you're like, the way he said the word like tells us where he's from, and because of that, we know where the story is. And that's the only part you gave a shit about. And it's like, who cares, but you care. And it, it's one of those things that, um, I mean, I think that's why some people, especially like ed some editors, I think it's in um, Sol Stein's book, he talks about, 
he has a whole chapter basically on openings and on the importance of that first paragraph um, because it is what draws people in. And, I mean, when you think about some of the really – and, and the, oh, this gets back to that tone or that, that one sentence thing we were talking about. I mean, when you think about classic novels and things like, for instance, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, I mean, so many people – know that post opening sentence and it's you wonder what was going through jane austen's mind when she wrote it she probably wrote that and went yes that <laughs> and just you know now i'm just going to write a whole novel like that and you know that's kind of like the dream i think we have as writers yes i think i think it's definitely that and a lot of us tragically find it in the editing process, because we just, you know, we, we train ourselves to sit and write, get the work done. That's the main thing. A lot of people try to edit while they're writing. And, you know, that's one of the rules you don't break. You just get to the end and then you worry about editing. Otherwise, you never get to the end because you stay stuck editing. So you make it to the end and you then go back, second draft, let's start editing. And that's where you really get to look at what you wrote and fall in love with your work because yeah you're in love with the creative process and making messes everywhere but you don't care about the work at that point you're just like hey i'm getting over there sweet and then you get there you start editing and you start uncovering things from your own writing you start bringing things out but if you can get the idea the the tone the the direction the feel regardless of if you know what's happening if you can get the emotion that you want in the beginning can you imagine how fluid the rest of it is going to feel if you can just capture it in a fucking bubble at the start? But how hard is that to do? Well, I actually think it's like, I mean, you might get lucky, but I think it's basically impossible. And I don't think it would be a good advice to any writer to kind of even aim at that. Yes, it does happen from time to time, but you wouldn't want to like, gear yourself trying to achieve that each time because honestly like how often is it going to happen like and if that's what you're going for and if it doesn't happen you might never write anything yes you might completely be sort of disappointed uh fall out of love with the whole process because you know the thing i wanted never happened but what i'll say is i don't know if you've ever read read hemingway on writing he has a couple of uh, basically that's that book takes place between letters that he was sending other writers and actually a lot of them are directed towards a pupil of his if i'm not mistaken and one of the things he actually did to accomplish that magic in a bottle was the first chapter he would fully edit the first chapter he would write the first chapter not know where it's going not give a shit fully edit the living crap out of it like it's a finished work like that could be published by itself and a lot of the time he would actually publish it with like his war articles and other crap but he would have this complete product and then build the story out of that whether it's really the beginning or it's really because he he called it the first chapter but it wasn't really because a lot of the times things would come forward from it and things would happen behind it so it could end up being the last chapter But the point is, he wrote this one complete work, a chapter, let's just say a chapter, and he would edit it to what he felt was completion. This feels like a done product. And then he would build the story around that. He would build the narrative. If um, If it's a reporting piece, he would find what is the value that he's trying to convey. He would finish that core idea, the conclusion or the point of it, or get the feel of it, and then structure everything around it. I don't know if I could do that because I feel like I need to know the thing 
But I think that's the problem. We all have different styles of approaching it. And there's no real, no, I, this is the right I way. Think that sounds great because I, I think that, I mean, I know from my point of view, like I have, you know, a, you know, a veritable drawer full of beginnings, if you like, um, you know, like where I've started, I've had the idea of a story and then I've got to the point where I've started writing or I've written out that idea and then realized that it's not a complete story. You know, it's not something I could put into a short story or a novel or whatever because um, it's just not complete. It's just kind of an opening. It's just a nice idea. And those can sit there for quite a long time, and then I might write others, and then one day I'll, you know, realize, you know, I'll be sitting there staring out into the distance with a cup of coffee, and I'll realize that two of them actually come together to make the, what really could be a story, because then you can start to see what actually happens, how something might end. And it's not until you have that complete picture that you can write the whole story, but that doesn't mean you can't really kind of work away at those first, you know, couple of thousand words maybe that um, that actually get the the thing going and and I, and you know part of the writing process is you know the writing every day or whatever process is sometimes just going back and looking at stuff you've written and thinking well is that is that really that good you know could i could i improve it somehow you know that i think that's part of writing as well yes definitely that's one of the hardest parts that's one of the real hard parts of a writer uh, is lessons which is sometimes you do have to sit there and you have to shovel through because there is something here but sometimes You've wasted too much time here, and this isn't going anywhere. And you got to put it down till either you've developed the skill to deal with it, because sometimes it's a skill problem. The idea isn't clicking, and you go write a different project, and then you come up with the tools. And when you look at this later, it's so easy to solve the problem. Other times, it is just a matter of when the right time happens. It's just going to make sense as either part of something else, or you're going to think of something that continues this and it doesn't even have to do with skill maybe it's a state of mind you're in that's blocking you from getting further but there's just as much sit down and do the work as there is put the work the fuck down and walk away and that is difficult to understand at the beginning once well, think, once you learn the lesson the you get through it doing the work, one of the things i think that um, stephen pressfield says about doing the work is that when he says doing the work, he doesn't necessarily mean literally typing sentences into your computer. I mean, you may be just taking notes. You may be doing some research. You may be just sitting at your desk with a coffee staring out the window. As long as you're not, you know, doing the other things in your life, then you're technically, you're doing the work. Um, you are focusing on this creative pursuit you have. So it's not, it's not the, it's not quite the same thing. I think people think of this doing the work idea in artistic and creative pursuits. They think of it a bit like, you know, training at the gym. And it's not. I mean, you don't have to be, you know, if you go to the gym, obviously, if you just stand in the middle of the room and do absolutely nothing, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to get any fitter that way. But if you sit in the creative space of your art and don't actually achieve anything for two two hours, you may actually still progress your art because you'll have come up with you know, ways to connect ideas, for instance. Definitely. The, just thinking as part of the process. Sitting there and letting thoughts happen. Sometimes it is about get up and take a walk. That's that's part of the process. Get up and take a fucking walk. And then when you come back later, maybe it looks different. And it is that simple. And this is why, and this is why artists are often criticized for looking like lazy asses. Because they, you know, a lot of the time that they're just thinking. And they're just in their own thoughts about their work. And you know, that can make them, to do that, you know, they might be walking in a park, but they may also just be lying on the couch, which doesn't look like they're doing much work. But in their mind, they're, they're creating the next thing. 
I actually think myself uh, as a victim of this, and not that anybody calls me lazy, but rather I find myself in these states and call myself lazy. Now, don't get me wrong. I write every single day. Something gets down, whether it be notebooks, laptops, little poems, short stories, tales. Every single day, without fail, something gets written down. But when I'm not putting something into the larger work, I almost feel guilty. Like, I, like I'm accusing myself of being lazy and not focusing on the work. And don't get me wrong. I am a great burst worker. Like, I will set invisible deadlines that mean fucking nothing and say, from this date to that date, I am doing these things. And I will sit there and I will accomplish them. And they get done in that time. And I will force it through. And I will get to the deadline. But then those gaps of you have to sit there and think, I do feel like I'm doing nothing even if I'm doing, and I know I'm doing something, but I also feel like I'm doing nothing. And I don't know if that's like a shared emotion between writers, but I do feel almost unproductive at times, even if the story continues to move forward. And I have a notebook that just keeps piling ideas for these stories that will become something, and that is doing the work, but not actually sitting there and creating the product itself feels like I'm doing nothing. And I don't know if that's common, if that's just me or where that stands, but that is definitely an emotion that overtakes me constantly. I mean, I think that's common. I mean, I, I, I probably don't suffer from that so much in, the, in that I, I, I'm, I mean, I don't, you know, have the kind of 100% rigorous discipline of sitting there and writing for two hours every single day. You know, I have days where I don't write. And, and I don't mind because I'm, I like, when I'm actually working on something creative, I like to be feeling like I'm, you know, really progressing the project. And um, and if I haven't got a project that's on the go, then I, you know, the, the liability is that I'll sit down at my desk and I'll just surf the internet. And, you know, I can do that anywhere. So, um, you know, I, I don't think, you know, if you're having a day where, you know, if you're having a day where you're not creating something or you're not even having any good thoughts, I don't think, it's good to feel guilty about that. Um, I think it's just part of, you know, living life. But of course, if that becomes every day and if six months goes past and you haven't put a single word on paper, then maybe you need to have a look at it. Yeah, I don't even understand how you don't have like a... <laughs> I have never understood if I don't have something main to go to. That has not happened since I was like 12 years old. Not having something to write would eat me up on the inside. I have had consistently through my life something that I'm working on. Whether it be a blog, whether it be a novel, a short story, a collection of poems. Uh, just writing down thoughts, writing down small, just anecdotes, anything, anything, anything. I don't know how I I couldn't. I could not. I would feel so imp I feel like it's therapeutic almost. Like I would lose my freaking mind without it but now kind of taking a turn here with all these different methods you have where you do sit and write and you do approach things differently and a lot of it does involve inspiration but a lot of it is you sit there and do the work your current work how did you get to the end of that how what method was it that led you through finishing this project well the the middle vale mystery which i think was referenced in the show, which is, um, it actually started its um, life as a serial in a, a sort of a, a, a rural area in a, in a sort of district um, newspaper. And as a result, it was eight months 
you know, eight episodes over the course of eight months. And so when the editor of the magazine asked me to write that, that the idea was, look, we've, we want it, we've, we want to put aside a page in the newspaper for a story for people to read. Would you be interested in writing a story? And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Um, what sort of thing would you like? Well, it's, you know, up to you. What, what sort of story would you like to write? And of course, I had to go away and think about what sort of story I'd like to write. And what happened was I came up with the idea. I thought, you know, I knew kind of who the audience was. I knew what the circulation was. It was rural areas and, um, you know, all of the sort of general kind of cultural mores that, that go with that. And, you know, I like stuff that's got a bit of pace. I like mystery and action and thriller type things. That's what, you know, that's my, my go-to, I suppose. And I thought, well, what about, say, a, you know, like what, so what did sort of Agatha Christie do? Well, she wrote sort of, you know, cozy murder mysteries, didn't she? And I thought, well, okay, this, you know, this newspaper goes out to everybody. It sits on coffee tables and therefore kids will probably read it. So maybe a murder mystery isn't such a great idea. Um, maybe a mystery set in the country, you know, and I, I sort of thought about that. And I went, what about if, you know, a city photographer lost his job and was sent out into the country to photograph a prize beast, a prize animal owned, owned by one of the farmers? And what if that animal went missing? What would happen? And uh, so I started writing you know, this story of, um, based on a sort of, you know, Agatha Christie meets, you know, all creatures great and small or something like that. and um, I started writing. Now, of course, the thing is, when you write a serial, it means you have a monthly deadline until the thing's finished. So for eight months there, I had a monthly deadline where I had to have a thousand words of this story pumped out. And um, that has that creates a whole different sort of set of challenges. I mean, it answers your question about, you know, how do you progress to the end of the process? Well, the answer is simply you've just got to. Right, so it's it, this. This totally disciplines you in terms of getting the story completed. Um, but it also means that you can't go back and edit stuff that's already been published. So I actually wrote this. I wrote the first three months worth in one session, basically. In uh, you know, in a, well, one session, a couple of days actually. It was, so it was about three thousand words, because I kind of had the the bones of the story in that first three three thousand words. And uh, then I spent the next sort of five months panicking. <laughs> so every month, I'd like, what happens next? And then, of course, I'd write what happens next. And then I'd go, well, hang on. If such and such happens, can that even be allowed to happen in this story world on the basis of what already has been you know, put out to print in previous months? So I'd have to go back and check because you can't change anything. So once it's been published, you have to keep going with what's been published. Now, it, it was a fascinating process, but it drove, it drove it to a conclusion. So that, that simply having to have that deadline every month made me finish the story. Um, but, uh, it certainly, it also forces, forced me to really be very careful and ruthless about plot points and character development and things. You know, you couldn't just introduce something that, you know, new when the last three episodes really didn't, you know, hint at that. Um, so it was great from that point of view, from the discipline of storytelling. Um, but anyway, what's on Amazon Kindle now is basically the whole thing as one, as one story, um, with some subsequent editing. Um, but mainly to actually just make it 
read better in my view and just a few things that you know i had that, that beautiful ability to go back to a story i'd written and tell it even better if you like but here's something yeah, that's, that's... that you've just brought up that i find completely fascinating and it was definitely explored through that which is the difference between having total and complete freedom which is almost crippling and having a deadline which although feels crippling while the other one feels free someone with zero rules like okay here is a canvas paint whatever you like and it's like what the fuck what do you mean paint whatever i like there's infinity but if there's rules and there's like you need to do this before then and it needs to be done this way even if you establish the rules after the first one those rules now exist and you have to follow those which kind of although harder also easier if that makes sense it's sort of a combination yeah, I think from a creative point of view, I actually think that it's impossible to create anything worthwhile um, with complete creative freedom. I think you have to have um, some restrictions, some some um, constraints, and it's only between those constraints that you ever get anything good. Um, and you know, sometimes the only way to progress a, a project is to actually set some some rules about it. I mean, when you think about it, this is essentially what um, is talked about when people talk about story world and continuity. I mean, you know, a science fiction story, for instance, tends to have to take elements of what you see today and then project them into the future. Um, But it goes into the realm of fantasy if it starts talking about people levitating things, for instance. Do you know what I mean? Like, so you have to agree with yourself, you know, what is allowed in your story world and what isn't allowed in your story world. And then you have to really stick to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a a big, that's another big problem writers seem to struggle with, which is the setting the universal rules and sticking to them, understanding how everything works, understanding the limitations of the universe, and then not changing them. Well, what are the rules? You have to, you have to make rules. You have to never break the rules, but you also can never mention the rules. Those are the three points you got to write every story with. The world needs rules. You can never break those rules. You can also never mention the rules because then you're just telling. I mean, that's where, you know, like really, really bad kind of superhero type things go terribly wrong. You know, that whole thing when they really jump the shark and, you know, all of a sudden a character who was, you know, could do X, Y, and Z, you know, three quarters of the way through the story, suddenly they're able to, you know, lift buildings or something. And that's how they save, you know, the day. I mean, it was never, the whole story set up a certain bunch of expectations for the reader or the, or the viewer. And then they broke those expectations in the, you know, in the climax. That always ruins the story because you just think, oh, geez, you know, really? I mean, what's the point in this story? Yes. If, you know, someone you have to make can just step in. You have to make the rules predictable. The story can't be predictable, but the rules have to be predictable. You have to be able to be reading and understand the limits, or the reader has to be able to read through and understand the limits without you ever mentioning what the limits are. It just needs to seem like inherent knowledge that they're going to be like oh yeah he can't do that so what is he going to do but if he suddenly does do that you're like well this is garbage it's because magic that he solved it what the fuck yeah and and you know when you get the things like so for instance like vampire stories right so like vampires can be killed with a you know a wooden stake to the heart for instance now that's like a rule and that works because it makes even these vampires who have superhuman strength and speed and things like that they have a vulnerability right so there's a way 
that they can be in the story and it's not like all bets are off. Like there is still the chance that the hero of the story can overcome the vampire. Now, if that vampire was truly, truly immortal and invulnerable to anything, then there'd be no story because there's nothing you can do to that character that would be, you know, interesting in any way. Like if, if you can't kill the character, then you may as well not have the character. And that's kind of like, you know, these things we're talking about is that you've got to have something that you can work with. And if all bets are off, if there are no rules, if there are no constraints on, on what can and can't happen, um, then really the whole thing kind of becomes pointless and it becomes almost impossible to follow as a, as a, you know, as a consumer of this art. I mean, even painting, for instance, I mean, one of the first things that a painter or, a, you know, a visual artist of that ilk has to decide is the materials they're going to paint with. And that's immediately a constraint. They have to have a canvas. They have to choose whether they want watercolour or oil or something like that. You know, these are choices that are made right before they even touch the canvas, but they do constrain what they're able to achieve. But they're choices that are made. But once those choices are made, you can't unchain, uh, you know, unmake them. That is definitely... Okay, so when you were making these rules and you, you did the first three... Uh, the first three months worth of work, you you edited, I'm assuming, the first one, and then based on however changes happened, you kept editing the second months until that was needed for the deadline, and then that yeah. means you had three months to get to the third one. And so you get there, and you have a bunch of rules. Were you panicking because you hadn't written anything else, kind of tweaking these two previous after the first? Or did you continue writing for the continued uh, uh, narrative ahead of time? Yeah, so well, one, well, I mean, to think of one one particular thing that that comes up that the sort of serial style writing where you can't go back and change things really matters is in the cast of the story. So, for instance, if you need something to happen late in the story, you may want a particular character to to exercise or do something. Right now, when you're writing a, a normal story that no one sees until it's finished. If you want to introduce someone doing X, the, the, you know, late in the story, you can always go back and insert them earlier in the story so they've been introduced to the reader. You know, the reader understands who they are and what they do and what they're likely to be able to accomplish. And you know, so when they actually do go and do something significant later in the story, it's no, it's no big surprise. You know, you're like, oh yeah, cool, that's that's interesting. You know, that that works. But if you get through to say, in in my case, so there were eight um, eight episodes and. If you get through to say you've published episode four, you're halfway through the story. Well, you're probably at a point now where, apart from like, you know, really sort of minor associated characters, all your primary and secondary characters really need to be in place because, you know, if you start introducing important characters now, people are going to be like, well, where the hell did they come from? You know, it would be breaking the rules of the world to just suddenly introduce people. And, and especially in a story, in my case, that's set in a small country town, I mean, you know, it just it would just totally pull you out of the fourth wall, and you'd be thinking, "Well, hang on, you can't just have people turning up every day." Um, so you have to then decide, "Well, okay, there's a role or there's a task that has to happen in the story. Is it possible that someone we've already met could fill out that role?" And so you have to then find ways to weave someone you've already a character you've already created into your story um, to do something or perform a function that perhaps you didn't anticipate they would perform earlier on. Um, and that actually becomes, that's challenging because you've already introduced them, so you know what their limits are. And so you have to ask yourself, well, within those limits, can this character 
actually pull off what I want them to pull off, um, knowing that I can't go back and change how they were introduced in the first place. That's a challenge. It really is quite challenging that, but it's a, it's good fun, and it, and it and it means that the whole story is tighter. It means that there's less characters, and it, you know, as we all know, some of the best stories actually don't have very many characters. You know, there might be four or five characters in a story that really matter, um, and there might only be one you know protagonist, and that's it. Um, everything else is just story world, um, and you know. Those not then when they're kept tight like that, those can often be the most successful stories. So the it seems like you definitely, yeah, you and I are very similar in that we we structure works better for us, and it's almost like the more crucial the structure, the easier it is for us to move within those lines. And for this project, the the sort of constraints and being obligated to be sure of things even if you weren't ready to be sure of them you have to think of them as already sure things so that when you keep moving forward you're not just randomly this oh no i can go back and change that later you don't have that option anymore this is what it is it's already out and that's what it's gonna be you have to sort of follow this no matter what so it's almost like there's a bunch of different lines kind of branching out of every character. And no matter what, you have to aim those lines towards each other until they tangle in some sort of way. And the plot is tangled in there, too. And you can't stop that train getting there. Your best bet is trying to make the transition from a bunch of separate lines to one as smooth as possible. Versus a bunch of random lines. They all have individual endings. Then I tie them up later in both ends and then call it a story you didn't have that option at all. It was the sort of momentum that started that kept you moving forward month after month. Yeah, and, and I mean, the thing is with that, I mean, I still I would still, I still had a decent idea about where I was going with it. I mean, it wasn't like I just started writing and went, oh, here we go, this will be our fun, and, you know, let's see what happens. I mean, I did have a fairly good idea about what I wanted, you know, like I, but, it, but I guess what I'm saying is I kind of knew, you know, I knew 80% of the first 20%, but only 10% of the last, 40%. Do you know what I mean? Like, I knew yeah, a lot yeah, about yeah. how it was going to begin. And I, I, all I had was just a vague idea of how it was going to end. Um, and that was enough to start writing. Are you a um, fan of then, knowing the ending? I, yeah, I think I do like to write towards something. Um, you know, uh, uh, to me, the enjoyable part of writing in a way is kind of working out how to get there. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't change the endings. That, that, have, that can happen too. But I like to feel like I'm writing my way to something. So you like to sort of... As opposed to writing. Yeah, yeah. You like to fill in the middle, if anything. You you have your starting point. That launches you. And you have your ending. You know where it launched you towards. You have those two points. And then you kind of fill in the middle until those two points touch. I mean, I know that, for instance, I've got starts of stories, as I was saying before. And the reason I haven't continued or finished those is because I just can't work out where that's going. Like, I like it. I like what I've written. I like, you know, there's something in my mind that's clever about it. But I can't sit down and, and write more because I can't picture in my mind where it's headed. So until I kind of have something that vaguely looks like a destination, I, I find it's difficult to, to continue. Okay, I can definitely get behind that thought. All right, so we're coming to a close here, and it's been real fun to have you, man. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, uh, all the projects you have, all your social medias, anything you want to share. I know you have a blog. I was looking at that earlier, talking about kind of your experience with writing and stuff like that. You can throw that in there, too. Yeah, well, that blog is 
is my website and that's probably the starting point. That's um, finleycarraway.com, which is F-I-N-L-E-Y-C-A-R-R-A-W-A-Y.com. Um, and you can find me also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, just Finley Carraway. The handle's the same everywhere. Um, and the short story, The Middle Vale Mystery, is available on the Amazon Kindle store. It's only available on Kindle at the moment. Um, and it's only a couple of bucks. It's, it's priced in Australia, but it's, I think it's like $2.70 in America. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's starting at the website with the blog is probably the best place to begin. Um, and then socials after that. Okay, that's pretty good. I was uh, enjoying your. I, I highly appreciate the the most recent posts, if I'm not mistaken, because there were a couple, some about form, but there was one particularly about talking about writers on writing, which is great to point that out towards people because a lot of writers don't know that's a thing. They don't really get yeah, informed right. on how others do it. They just go about it, and it's sometimes helpful. Like, you don't have to take everything another writer does, but it's good to know that there are other things in other ways. Yeah, I, lo- I love books about um, writing, on about writing. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think I've mentioned in that latest blog post the, um, the yeah, uh, Stephen King's on writing and um, Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird, which are probably at the top of everybody, every writer's lists of these books. Um, but yeah, there's just something really cool about reading, you know, especially, you know, really successful writers, um, especially successful writers who have written in a field that you enjoy yourself. So that's why I've mentioned in that post about, yes, um, quite definitely. Uh, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, writers on writing is a really good series. There's a couple of those. I think there's like three different, uh, collections of thoughts based that writers gave based on writing. Uh, Hemingway on writing and a Chuck Palahniuk's most recent book on writing as well. Those are just things that every writer on top of Stephen King, I think I'm not the biggest Stephen King fan, but that book on writing is one of the most useful tools for a writer I have ever read. His tricks, his ideas, his philosophies on writing are just astounding. And like part of that is biography, yeah, anyway. He's got a no nonsense approach. That's the thing. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Like I'm not a Stephen King fan. His stories like devolve to like a, a laptop being the bad guy. Great. But that's definitely for somebody, and I fully understand how that's great. I get it. It's not for me, but I get it. His book on writing. Think about what I'm saying, listeners. Is the best. I love satire. Meanwhile, Stephen King's book on writing is the top of it. Highly recommend anybody and everybody check that out. And I uh, appreciate you having been here very much, man. You are quite an interesting guy, and I hope all the fires over there go out, and I hope the melting polar ice caps don't drown you, but do put out the fires. Yeah, let's just hope for the best, huh? Yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate you being here, man. We definitely need to do this again. Anytime you have something ready... Let us know. We'll we'll do this again, man. You are quite fascinating. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Jack. No, it's been great. Definitely, man. So uh, we're going to have links to everything you talked about, all your things on this. It's going to show up on the show notes, and uh, we're going to connect to your website and stuff. And yeah, man, I'll talk to you afterwards. Uh, stay in contact. Keep in touch with all the things that is going on with you, all right? That's fantastic. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. You are quite the... I, uh, if there's something that I like a lot, it is picking the mind of creators 
we all have different forms. We all have different uh, directions, different uh, motivations, different methods. And it's always interesting to find out what the philosophies behind them are, what our techniques and tricks are, what interests us in the first place. These are just weird things. And I think that's uh, for writers specifically, it's in particularly interesting to find out why well, another writer does it, you know? I mean, like one of the most fascinating things about people is finding out why they get out of bed in the morning and what motivates them to do what they do. And that's pretty much the reason why writers have ever written anything. A hundred percent. There is something fascinating about the world and we don't know what it is and we're trying to find it through our writing. That's it. That's all it is. There's nothing else motivating any of us. Anyways, man, thank you very much for being here and I'll stay in touch. Well, thank you too and I will do. All right, man. Have a good night. You too. Why? Why not? That hurts. Hey, they gotta live with it. They chose to be here. Nope. Everybody hurt. Everybody hurt. Eh, Fair enough. Everybody hurt. But everybody chose to be here and be hurt. Did it hurt you? No. Didn't hurt me. I was the one doing it. Uh... But yeah, so it wasn't that fucking fascinating. That was the world's on fire. The world's on fire. Finley is quite the informative individual. Very interesting, but educated me on the fact that it's not just the Americas on fire. It's the planet on fire. Yeah. And I didn't know that they shared firemen to yeah. help each other. Like, that's pretty cool. That's cool. That's a system. Western culture helping each other, but then letting, like, Africa starve. They're probably on fire, too. They're probably on fire, too, to be real. But we're still not, like, sending anybody over there. We're like, we're going to send our firemen to help the white people. But... Sorry to you colored individuals. We got fires to deal with. It's like, but we got fires, too. You'll, you'll be fine. You got firefighters, right? We barely have, like, water to put the fires out with. That's cool. We'll be there eventually. Eventually. Oh. Yay, Western culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's crazy. The planet's on fire. But like I told him, eventually the polar ice caps are going to melt anyways and put all the fires out. That is so sad. No, I guess that's a good ending. That's fine. That's great. The plants will continue to go and will be drowned. So the world will recover. Mm -hmm. Or we just do something. We're good. Yeah, yeah, last minute, do something. Yeah. Yeah, that's always what happens. Last minute, we will. It's never not the case. When we're most desperate, that's when we have all the answers. Mm -hmm. Because money is the answer. And people with money are just not worried yet. But when they are worried, they got the answer. Money. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be very quick. Yeah. They found the cure. Yo, it'll happen overnight. It'll be like, well, it seems like we only have 50 days if we don't come up with a solution. Next day. It seems like... The solution has been given to us by all the billionaires of the world. There is no longer a problem. That's not how they were worded. They'll be like, the scientists discovered this thing, and now we can yes. just do that. And yep. They discovered it that. just in time. Meanwhile, yeah. the scientists only got the funding because the rich people were scared. Yep. Like, they have the uh, answer, but they can't take care of the problem until they have the money, which 
the millionaires need to give them. Yeah. And they will have the money. They're totally so, going to have yeah, the money. they'll eventually have the money. Right at the end. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yes. It's no longer me just saying America at the end of things. It's just me saying Earth. Earth. Mirth. 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 That's, that's my new phrase. It's mirth. It's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, but it sounds like what's happening. Yes. What's happening? Mirth. That's what's going on. But yeah, definitely a very interesting individual talking about uh, forms of writing, about the world burning politics, the politics of the world, the fucked up politics of the world, how people are fucking idiots, but it's entirely by design because we're kept stupid. And uh, it's interesting, but universal healthcare would change the dynamic so hard that the rich people would be obligated to keep the poor people healthy just so that less poor people go to the hospitals and take more money out of their pockets. Wait, so what's that second part? What? You gotta give everybody universal health care. That means tax the 1% and give that money to health care so that everybody has universal health care. Great. Then, based on the amount of people that go to the hospital regularly and need medical treatment, you need to adjust that percentage that's being charged to the 1%. So they're more inclined to give a little bit of money and make sure nobody's sick than they are to give hundreds of millions of billions of dollars because they got everybody sick by not letting them have resources and then people got to go to the hospital and that money comes out of their pocket anyways at the following year when the budget is adjusted for whoever went. Mm-hmm. gets taken out of the pocket. So, like, fast food disappears. It just ceases to exist. Why? Yeah. Because it's making people unhealthy. Which is making them poor. Which is making I mean, them poor if they're the ones paying for the healthcare. Yeah. It can't be that complicated. Other countries do it. They're not dying. They're not complaining. They're not crying about it. They're not. This country is just run by the money. But the people... There's gotta be people with money in those countries, too. They're yeah. not whining. They're not because they're keeping people healthy. Is Food it... that's illegal everywhere else is legal in the United States. They just solved the problem elsewhere. We're not going to let you get sick so that that money doesn't come out of our pocket. Mm-hmm. Oh, Over here, now. Yeah. it's totally legal because we don't get charged for it. When we do, all that shit leaves. We will lobby Till the end of the world, so that all that is illegal and it doesn't make it into food, and fast food is as healthy as home cooked meals because we're not gonna give you more than what is crucially obligatory. That would be great. Yep. Then, so fast food will be illegal? It wouldn't be illegal, it, it would, would just... be healthy. It would be healthy. Or it wouldn't harm you the way it is, it wouldn't have all this bullshit that's illegal across the world. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yes. Yep. And uh, these giant farms that are keeping cows in small cubes, and then they poo and pee there, and then they get moved one cube over and slaughtered, and all that poo and pee made it in, and then they put that on a thing and put it on the shelves and sell it. The billionaires who run those companies are going to make sure that these companies, that they are already letting run this nasty and dirty, because like, the money still gets in my pocket. I don't care. They're going to be like... If there is a fucking 
a single germ in any of this, you have lost your job and I'll make sure your family starves to fucking death. So this whole business better be spotless. If a single person gets sick out of this shit, it is my money that's coming out of my pocket. I'll make sure you never work again, you son of a bitch. So they'll be the good guys for money. For money. And they should have, they should make some things illegal then, right? Like the things that are illegal in other countries. Yes, all the additives and crap like that that's just poison, but they still leave. Why not alcohol and cigarettes? Is that too much to ask for? There would be systems put in place to help people control those things. Because if you're paying for health care and you want your money, but there's a wave of alcoholism and drug addict addicts who need to go to the hospital consistently, you're going to fund cheaper programs than the expensive medications that they need to take so you're going to make sure that they have options just so that their option isn't a bunch of medication that rapes your pocket amazing amazing yep that is definitely something fucking astounding to take from that conversation great stuff we save the world yeah yeah definitely the the merle the mirth the mirth. We saved the mirth. Oh, mirth. Mirth. But yeah, and uh, books on writing. I think that's a very important thing for writers. Any writers who listen to this, we are not kidding. All the books he said, go to his website, read what he's written. Finley has his given blogs. some. Yes, he's given some insightful things in there, some useful information on top of some great books on writing to read. One of which is Stephen King's, which that and Hemingway I put at the very, very top. And there are collections, like Writers on Writing, that is a great collection. But Hemingway and Stephen King are probably the two most systematic writers. They have formulas and ideas and philosophies and plots and and just a way of thinking and doing things. Although I personally dislike Stephen King's writing, like I said, because I'm not a fan of just weird... But I like the movies that they come up with for Stephen King. His movies are, some of them are good, at least. But they're like, his movies really come from directors who were like, I can turn this into something better. Mm, But, like, what was that Gerald's game? Come on. Oh my god, that was so He had to write something like that. Man, I wonder if it reads the same way. I don't know, but... The struggle, like, oh, how does that... Yes, reading that moment of what is she going to do and actually doing it, what is that? Nevertheless, reading is so much slower than, like, watching something. Yes. So, so it's, it's like, like, when you see the guy standing at the foot of the bed and you think it's a dream, how long are you reading about that that's just a fucking nightmare? That could be, like, three pages for something that was a single scene. Yes, or how long does it take for him to go through her sawing her? Oh, I'm spoilers, I guess. Although I guess you should men- we should have mentioned that earlier. Whatever, when she's sawing her hand off. Yes. Oh my oh. god. So good. Oh, so bad. That so good. It's, it's so bad. It's good. It's so good. It's bad. I don't know what it's, way it's supposed to go. It's awful. <laughs> it's so bad. And it's not bad that it's good. It's just horrible goodness. It's yeah. just horrible events that equal great storytelling. Yes. And another spoiler. The movie The Mist. Did you see that movie? No. Uh, it's about... I don't know if the road is going to end like this. 
because I haven't finished that story. I've mentioned that I'm reading it. I'm still I'm a slow reader, people. But um, the in the end of the movie, um, pretty much everyone dies, I think, and it's just him and the boy, and I think I think there's two other people with them in a car, and they're about to kill they're about to kill themselves because of how horrible this world is. And so he's, I think he kills the boy, and then he's going to kill himself, but he can't, because, oh, there's no more bullets, so he's going to go to the monsters. They're going to kill him, of course, right? Except, the second he does that, the monsters are dead, because the army came and killed off the monsters and stuff. Like, right in the second, and it's like, what? What? Like That's how that movie ends? Yes. It's such a good ending. It's, like, so sad. And so, like, it's like that lady cutting off her arm. It's like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But That's fucking nuts. And, yeah, so I don't know if the road... I know, like, there's some kind of emotional... Sa- like, it's all sadness right now. But, and I know there's a gun. That gun that keeps they keep mentioning. Yeah. And there's just one more bullet left. It makes you wonder, right? Yes. I'm wondering if it's going to be emotional like that, but... I'll find out. Whoa, dude, that's nuts as shit. You should have totally just told me to watch that. Really? You can still watch it? Don't care anymore. The oh, twist man. is out. Oh. That's so nuts, though. It's so nuts. Whoa. Hey, it's a sci-fi, though. You don't want to watch it for the it's is it a monsters sci-fi? from other dimensions. Like, that tra- the oh, trailer sa- said something about... Not the trailer, though army people say something about there is a dimension we open yeah they basically and... stranger things did or whatever yeah or i guess vice versa stranger things is just a ripoff yeah because they ripped off a bunch of things that's just one of the many things word but that's not even from the eight oh then again the book might be oh yeah yep whoa it might be i don't know but yeah fascinating fascinating interesting stuff going on anyways on that note it was a real good conversation that was had with that uh, was a good conversation and uh if you guys want to find other things for this man you can find him on all his social media locations twitter facebook instagram at finley caraway you can find his a website where he has his blog at finleycaraway.com and you can find his book on Amazon Kindle which is The Middle Veil Mystery and as you guys heard it is a, a collection of it's it's one story but broken up but then tied together for this it used to be many it became one it was always one but it was episodic it was serialized and episodic and now it got tied he tied that together turned it into one thing so you guys can go find that on amazon kindle again the middle veil mystery and for our locations you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram at just convo pod you can also find the podcast on the official website at greatthoughts.info apple podcast podbean google podcast spotify or stitcher yes and remember to subscribe rate review the show let us know what you think about the show that kind of stuff helps everybody and as you heard at the beginning of the program we read that on the show and uh it helps people find it and then when they do find it it helps people know whether it is for them 
people strolling by and they're like, hey, just conversation, what's this? And then they click it and they, and they look and they're like, let me read some reviews to see if I should dedicate an hour of my life. And it's like, wow, they're crazy. A bunch of topics sounds awesome. Or too many topics doesn't sound awesome. I like one topic over many episodes. Or... They, they sound like that? maniacs. I don't oh, know. I guess that's a normal podcast, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. maybe some people are like, I just like a podcast where they talk about movies. And if they're not talking about movies, I don't want to watch it or hear it. Hear it. I guess you can watch podcasts now. Sometimes you can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make sure to watch the Joe Rogan podcast. Giving him that. No, that watch good old, podcast. That good old just conversation bump so that he could get a couple of listeners. He, he needs the help. Mm-hmm. Joe Rogan. He's our buddy, man. Go ahead and listen to his show. <laughs> Help him out. Help him get some of those listens. And you can let somebody know about this show. Yes. Word of mouth. Powerful stuff. People share it. Talk about it. Let others know. Tell them that there's reviews they can read to find out whether it's for them. And tell them what you thought about it. If you made it this far, you went through a lot. So you're here. You listened this far, at least. And so, That's yeah. incredible. That is incredible. You leveled up in life. Yeah. This, this podcast makes you woke. Yeah. You learn things. You get experience points. Yes. Anyways, this has been the Just Conversation Podcast. Take nothing personal. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. like rotting cheese you think we'll be able to find some rotting cheese oh rotting i mean (laughs) not rotting cheese but cheese that'll rot that'll rot yeah i mean just real cheese i wonder how long it takes compared to everything else though we just gotta make a healthy taco like a real healthy taco find some real meat get real everything done and we have to make the flour ourselves wheat i mean the not the flour the um the (laughs) The taco part, the hard part. The shell? The shell. We, yeah. Yes, we have to make that shell ourselves. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do all of it. We're going to do all of it. We're going to manifest meat. I'm going to grab, like... We're going to raise a cow? We're going to raise a, a cow. And ki- I guess it's a pig. And we're... Because it's a real taco. It's going to be a real taco. It's an a... authentic taco. So we we're have to use it? all Mexican ingredients. Where are we going to find the pig? Where are we going to we'll put the pig? buy a baby pig. One of those uh, micro pigs. Oh. And then we'll have it for like a month. We'll make it crazy, juicy, fat, and then we murder. Can the we pig. eat those pigs? I bet that's like illegal or something. Who the fuck says? I don't know. People will find out what we're doing, and they'll be like, "That's animal cruelty." Worst case scenario, PETA starts bothering us, and then we just go to the NRA and we're like, "Guys, we need your help." <laughs> They're gonna help us with PETA. They're gonna help us with PETA. Peter's gonna like kill animals to protest about the animal killing. I know. It's gonna be awful. They're gonna kill our animals, I like our actual most, pets. I think the most accurate version of PETA is the one from South Park. What happened in South Park? Well, they're they're on they're in like a compound where they're fucking the animals and having relationships with the animals and shit. What? I Basically, that. oh my gosh, PETA huh. is the what the hell the rail people from fucking Fallout. What is the it called? The railroad? People. The railroad, yeah. Is, is that, that the name of it? Called? I feel like we're close, but not necessarily there. Railway? No? The hidden rail? Whatever. Those people. 
They weren't doing anything inappropriate. They were they putting the the androids over the people. But were they falling in love with these androids? The people, the PETA people, are putting the animals before the humans. But they're definitely falling in love with these animals? I think they're fucking the animals. I think PETA's whole point is, let's stop killing the animals. We should be having sex with them. Oh my, man. Ugh. Ugh. So... I mean, why wouldn't they? The Just Conversation podcast is hosted by Christina Clauso and Jack Thomas, produced by Lynn Taylor, and published by Great Thoughts That Info, social media managed by Amber Black.